Thrash It Out is sponsored by all of you because we are 100% funded by listeners who help us make completely independent and unbiased shows with no sponsors or advertisers. Instead, we have a Patreon where you can support us directly. Go to patreon.com slash thrash it out to make your pledge. This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today we are talking about the debut album from Linkin Park, Hybrid Theory, released in October 2000. And yep. that will make you feel old when you realize this album is more than 15 years old now. Oh, it's unbelievable. That, that is, is uh, when I realized that, I was like, oh God. <laughs> yeah, it's Father crazy. Time knocking at the door. <laughs> There's been a lot of those reminders lately, but this was another one where it was like, holy crap, man. It really was. Oh, well, and speaking of that, let's actually just mention that at the top of the show. We're recording this uh, not long after the very sad death of Prince. Yes. Um, which, and you know, Prince is not a metal musician, obviously. However, he was, if you've ever seen him play live, an absolutely awesome guitarist. Like could absolutely shred with the best of them, even though he didn't do it on most of his records. He was, you know, very capable of it. Um, and you know, no, he may he may not have been metal, but he kind of embodied a lot of the spirit of metal. I thought, you know, he was very independent. He worked, and well, until the day he died, you know, he was very prolific, and he did whatever the hell he wanted to, and did not care what anybody else thought that he should do, or whether people even liked his music. Absolutely. He was, he was 100% the type of rebel that you think of when you think of heavy metal music, right? Exactly. Yeah. And he was also a guy who crossed so many different genres and, and sort of borders between music that he was always popular with such a huge audience. And I think that, you know, it's not, we're talking about a band today in Lincoln Park that was one of those bands that sort of crossed over a few different genres and had mm. a much wider appeal than a lot of the bands that we talk about on this show. And and that was something that Prince was all about. I mean, me being a, a metalhead through and through to the core, know a lot of uh, I know a lot of Prince's music. And I think anybody who grew up in our era knew who Prince was, knew his music, liked some of his songs. All of us knew Purple Rain. You know, it's like he was he was bigger than any one genre of music. He absolutely was, yeah. Um, yeah, and that crossover is absolutely true. Um, of course, for you and I, let's not, we also know him because of Batman. Oh, for sure. <laughs> because of the Batman album, which is a great album, you know, for what it is. No, it's, again, it's not metal, but it's a great album. I always said that like, I wasn't the hugest fan of Prince the Musician. But I was an enormous fan of Prince the Artist, Prince the Man, because, uh, yeah, he was just, he was so prolific. He was so, multi, so talented, so varied in his talent, uh, and so completely independent and just off on another, well, much like Bowie, you know, just off on another plane, doing his thing. And, you know, whether the world caught up with him or whether he was fashionable or not, just didn't seem to concern him at all. You know, he was very, very comfortable doing what he did and living up to his own standards rather than everybody else's. And you have to respect that. Oh, 100%. And just as a performer, 
you know, th- those of us who are who are into music and go to a lot of live shows and stuff like that, like Prince is one of the most amazing performers that ever lived. So for that, he'll be remembered forever. There's one that I have to mention talking about his uh, skill as a guitarist. This has been doing the rounds uh, since his death. I think it was... I think it was the Grammys or something like that, you know, or maybe a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In, I don't know, some performance where George Harrison's son was there uh, and he, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynne and Prince performed uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Wow. Uh, and like Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne did the main part of the song. George Harrison's son was basically just strumming away in the background and grinning. Um, and then they kind of kept Prince hidden. And then once the main body of the song had finished, he kind of sauntered on from the side of the stage to do his solo. Oh my goodness. One of the most amazing guitar solos, especially for a song like that, where you don't really associate it with shredding guitar solos. Just amazing. Uh, and then at the end he did what, um, John Gruber on his podcast last week called The Greatest Mic Drop I Have Ever Seen. He finished the solo, took off his guitar, threw it in the air. It didn't come back down. No idea what happened to it. It just stayed up in the air That's somehow. That's crazy. And then he just kind of, he does this weird little gesture where he sort of nods and almost clicks his fingers, but to himself, and then walks off stage doesn't even acknowledge the crowd or the other musicians just sort of as if he's saying to himself yeah yeah that was all right and then walks off you've got to see it it's on youtube it's amazing uh, i'm assuming you're going to put a link to that in the show notes because i will try and find it that now. yeah i will try and find it and okay. uh and uh yeah and put a link to it because it is just i mean it's a great solo anyway but it's the end the very end just his attitude of like yeah that was all right and then walks off <laughs> yeah i've never seen that i i definitely need to now but yeah, I can't remember whether it was Grammys or whatever, but I'll look it up. I'll look it up. Okay. Um, so anyway, so that was that was very sad um, because yeah, as I say, you know, not that much to do with metal, but no, and we're musician. on a terrible run right now in terms of losing like <sighs> some of the most amazing creators of all time. We really are. We really are. Yeah. Um, uh, I something uh, I saw today actually that jibes with uh, something else we've been talking about a lot recently. There was an article on metal injection about um, why is there so much good metal coming out these days, about how we seem to be inundated. Right now is a really good time for, you know, really good heavy metal. For sure. Um, and it's quite an interesting article. I'm, you know, I mean, they're basically saying that it's mostly the internet, but also the sort of uh, wealth of knowledge about production tools and stuff and the easy access to production tools um, going around these days. You know, a lot of producers are happy to sort of uh, share their knowledge and their experience so everybody sounds a bit better. Um, and also, yeah, you've got things like Last FM and Bandcamp and SoundCloud just promoting easy access and easy distribu- distribution of, you know, uh, music by bands that you otherwise simply would never have heard of. Well, and the other thing I think too, just in terms of like bands that we talk about all the time, is that you have a lot of bands out there who are who are creating new music that we've never heard of that that are awesome and now we have access to those bands in a way that we would never have before like you just said but you also have bands that we grew up with who are at that stage of their career where they are realizing that there's not that many albums left for them and so they're putting out some of the best music of their careers they're putting everything into it i mean we just talked about that you had from slayer's new album that came out last fall 
to Megadeth's new album that came out at the beginning of this year, to the Anthrax album that came right after it, three of the big four just put out three of their best albums in the mm-hmm. past six months. And well, these are and bands who started everything. Yep, and right at the start of those six months, if you remember um, when Motorhead's last album yeah. came out, I mentioned like how, how it was their best album in years and certainly one of the heaviest things that they'd done you know, in, in their modern era. Um, and yeah, and obviously we know now that Lemmy probably had a good idea that that may have been his last album. Yeah, I mean, so you have these bands that we've been listening to for decades now who are still putting out amazing music and then you have all of these other bands that we're now discovering through all of the different means that you just talked about and when you put it all together it feels like metal is back you know in a way that it hasn't been in a long time and it just it just feels like it it, it, we're living in a a really great time for metal right now and i was just looking the other day like they had they had a deal I forgot to pull it up here, but basically I get emails all the time about concerts that are coming around and that kind of stuff. And they have a a $50 lawn seat for this amphitheater near me right now for three different concerts. One of them is uh, like Disturbed and Breaking Benjamin and somebody else. Another one is like Slipknot and somebody else. And then the other one is like Korn and Rob Zombie or something. But it's three separate concerts that are happening over a month. $50 for a lawn um, seat, get you into all three of those concerts. But it's crazy, right? And, and you'd pay fifty bucks just to see any one of those bands. I know, and so I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get a couple of tickets to that, and then just go with whoever you know happens to be around. I might even take my son <laughs> to one of them because, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. because maybe I not think, the Slipknot one. <laughs> no, but I think the Disturbed one actually. Uh, I want to say like Alter Bridge is playing with them and Breaking Benjamin and stuff, and so I could totally right. see him you know, uh, digging some of that stuff. So, and their lawn seats. So you can, you, you know, you, you've got the sort of run of the place, but right. Yeah. But 50 bucks in, in all these great tours. And then I was looking at other bands that are coming around. Like we're, we're definitely here hitting concert season as we get into May. And now I'm just seeing dates pop up all over the place. So I'm not going to be able to make every show that I'd like to make, but man, there's so much good music going around. And, uh, I, I just can't wait to get out and see some more live music, especially coming off of that Megadeth show, you know, a little while ago. Um, but it, it really is an amazing time for metal right now. And and I love it. Keep it coming. Like, I'm, I'm all for that. I, I like one or two good metal releases a month. It, it brings me back to the days of high school where that's what it was. Like, it, right, as right. we talked about before, going to the local music shop, like, there was a couple of albums coming out almost weekly when I was back in high school that my buddy and I were getting. And it just seemed like we always had new music to listen to. And it feels like we're almost at that point again, where we're always having new metal to check out. I mean, just looking at the Facebook page with the, the albums that people have been suggesting even just this week are albums that I've never heard of bands that I've never heard of. And I'm like, Oh, well, that's awesome. And that's what I was going to say was that that his other sort of main point in this article, and I'll put this article in the show notes as well. His other main point is that we've reached a point, we seem to have reached a point anyway, where metal, as we keep saying, metal is a broad church. You know, there is so much now within metal uh, that, you know, that necessarily broadens the, the amount of stuff that we regard as good metal being released. Um, and again, talking about bands that we've never heard of, he there links to two videos in the article by uh, a band called Alcest, which I think who I think a French sort of metal come shoegaze band. 
um, and one called 12 Boar, but it's spelt X-I-I and then Boar as in a wild boar. Uh, and they're from the UK, apparently. They're a sort of stoner rock outfit, and I am pretty sure you would really like them. Oh, I'm, so I'm you, you de- Yeah, you've definitely got to go and check out that article just to get the link to that YouTube. It, as soon as, within like 30 seconds, it was like, mm, Brian, I like this. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's like somebody was posting a link to uh, Baby Metal last week or something like that, which yeah. I've never been like super into, but then there was this other band called Bandmade, which I listened to a song from, and I was like, holy crap. This group is like right in my wheelhouse, and it, it yeah. had like a like a bluesy, rocky sister sin type of vibe to it. It was awesome, and and so yeah, so like in the Facebook group, we have people posting every other day, "Hey, check this band out, check this video out," or "This is one of my favorites," and there's stuff I never heard of. So I feel like now, especially since we started doing this show, it's just a smorgasbord of of uh, new music coming at me all the time, which is just awesome. Yeah, I mean, there is there is literally more than we have time to listen to now, which is great. I mean, that's really what you want, isn't it? You know, it's unfortunate in a way because it means you have to be quite selective about what you listen to. Well, but at the same time, better that than you know than not enough. And and not that I want to discourage people from listening to podcasts, but uh, because obviously we're recording <laughs> one right now. But the music has taken the lead again for me over podcast listening. Where for oh, a interesting. while, you know, I I was listening to podcasts at work all the time and and listening to 15 to 20 hours probably well maybe not 20 hours but a lot of hours of podcasts over the course of the week and now i just feel like i have so much good music to be listening to and to check out that i that that's really eating into my podcast time and i'm all right with that yeah yeah absolutely um uh speaking also of uh, gigs i went to my first proper gig in quite some time actually uh, a few weeks ago in london uh, with uh, Andrew Salmond, uh, who is the uh, the Kiwi who now lives in Britain, that I, who uh, recently became a patron and joined the Facebook group. Um, Andrew is the manager of Gosh, a very well-regarded and very well-known comic store in London. Um, so I've known him for donkey's years. Um, and uh, he, I think he posted, he may have posted the video for this on the Facebook group, actually, a band called Vadoon, who are a three-piece uh, of a singer, a guitarist and a drummer uh, who make sort of, you know, voodoo inspired stoner rock is the only way to describe it really. Uh-huh. Um, and it was their album launch. Uh, and I just happened to be in town cause I don't live in London, but I go there a lot for work and I just happened to be in London for, uh, you know, on the night that this gig was there. And I was like, Oh, I'll try and make that. Um, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. It was, uh, the openers were a band called Casual Nun. <laughs> I like that. They were, uh, uh, sort of post rock drone metal. Uh, you have to respect a band where the lead singer has his own pedal board to like to process his voice. They were just amazing. Um, then support was, uh, a modern sort of stoner rock group called Lim who clearly have quite a fan base. I actually saw quite a few people turn up just to watch them and then leave when they were finished. Um, They seem to be building quite a name for themselves, so keep an eye out for them. And then Vadoon themselves were just amazing. Well, they were on fire, literally, because uh, for the last song, for the closing track, the drummer set fire to her cymbals. (laughs) Oh, I like that. (laughs) With lighter fluid. That's some Alice Cooper Motley Crue action right there. (laughs) It was just amazing. Um, But yeah, it was... What did it cost me? Like a fiver? And it was just amazing. I was like, is this the state of modern indie 
sort of underground rock. Like none of these bands, I mean, I think they all have, uh, or at least the, the, last, the last two have record deals on indie labels. But I mean, you know, none of them are signed to majors or, you know, doing sort of big business or anything. These are very much indie underground bands. And the performances were just superb. And we were talking about this on the on the night. And we, I was, my theory is, I wonder, now that bands, now that we have returned to a time where bands have to be good live, that basically they make their money playing live. They ain't making money selling records anymore, as we all know. Uh, so instead, they have to make money playing live. Therefore, I wonder, is there more of a drive, more of an impetus for them to be really good live? Do you know what I mean? Sure, absolutely. I, yeah, I think put there more is, emphasis and, on it, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, the there are so many great local venues to check out music at like around here in my area and the last one that i remember where i just saw a, a tons and tons of, of great like local bands is when we went to rock and shock which is a horror and heavy metal convention they have it around halloween every year and there's big headlining bands that that are there all three days of the show but there are local bands and sort of mid-tier bands for saturday and sunday like all day and they play upstairs in a bar at this uh, at the Worcester Palladium, and they and they also play downstairs a little bit. And it's one of those things where we walked over. Matt and I went to it, and uh, when we walked over and listened to these bands, like you could just stay there all day and listen to the music. They're all different. They're all they were all great live. They all had great energy, and all the people there were just there to sort of celebrate music. And and we have two local venues. They're actually sister venues: the Worcester Palladium and this place in Hartford, Connecticut, called the Webster Theater. And every weekend, they have these local bands playing there where they'll have three or four or five bands. And it really is one of those things that when you're looking for your favorite bands to go see at a show and you see all these shows in between with these local bands that you've never heard of, take a chance on some of those, man, and just go out and see some of that live music because more often than not, you know, you'll be blown away. I mean, that, that was how I first heard Volbeat which is this awesome uh, band that's pretty well known over here now. But when I saw them with Megadeth open one time, they they were absolutely amazing. With Megadeth and Motorhead, actually, I saw them with, and they were fantastic. And there's a lot of these um, new bands that are that are getting the, you know, the the beginning of the card on a lot of these bigger shows, and they're just amazing. But we're we're fortunate to have a lot of little venues around here that I can go to to see local music, and I can never get out as much as I'd like to, but you go see a show like the one you did and then you're blown away and you've, you come away with three new bands that you can, you know, add to your, add to your list of, uh, of must get albums. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I'd literally never heard of any of these bands. The only band I'd even heard of was the headliner. And it's not that I'd heard of them ages ago. I'd heard of them, you know, two weeks before when Andrew posted a video of theirs on the Facebook group and said they're doing the album launch. Um, so I'd never heard of any of them and all three were fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I bought the Vadoon album there. I kind of felt, you know, I should, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, w- I wanted to, but I kind of felt I should anyway, since it was the album launch, you know, support them. But I also immediately went to casual nuns band camp and downloaded everything. You know, I bought everything on their band camp page as well. Um, because yeah, I was just so impressed by all of the bands. It was, uh, and like I said, I'd never heard of any of them. It was amazing. That's awesome. I wish there were more venues like that around here. There are more in London than out here in the provinces, but there still aren't that many compared to America anyway. There aren't as many, certainly, as there used to be. 
which is a real shame. Well, and where um, I'm located is like smack dab between New York and Boston. Right, so yeah, for yeah. me, it's like we're in that corridor where there's a lot of, there's just a great music scene in this part of right, the Right, because everybody's on their way from Boston to New York anyway, so why exactly. not stop off there and do a gig? Well, and, and all the, the kids who are now in their own bands and making music grew up in this area listening to all that stuff as right. it passed through town. And so you just have this, it, it just sort of replenishes itself. And uh, Well, uh, and metalcore, uh, you know, what we now think of as metalcore kind of originated in uh, New England anyway, didn't it? Yeah, I believe I th- it did. Yeah. That, Plus you've got the New York hardcore in... scene too, you know what I mean? So, I mean, just right, in terms yeah. of the... In terms of the legacy here, it's huge. Um, all right, so uh, let's just quickly... Oh, uh, I wanted to mention, um, for, following on from last episode, I am definitely digging Infectious Grooves nice. more, th- more than I dug Suicidal Tendencies. So hurrah, thank you for that. Um, I'm glad. Because, yeah, I am definitely digging that more. That's more my kind of thing, I think. Um, you're definitely getting into that. What's cool uh, about Infectious Grooves is that that's them just totally, not that they held back in suicidal tendencies, but that is uh, that is them just really letting loose, you know? Right, right. Well, and not worrying about are we sort of, you know, rocking or metal enough. Right, really not taking feedback from anybody. Yeah, exactly, which I always love. Um uh oh just so that everybody knows we will be doing the the patron album selection poll the album nomination poll thing is now closed uh i closed it yesterday as we're recording this and we will be doing that at the end we'll do it here live on the show we'll do the random selection so uh keep listening for that at the end of the show um once again i'm going to shout out uh or call out i should say for guitarists and bassists uh to help me with the uh, theme song. I've had a couple of responses, but not as many as I was expecting. If I'm honest, a little disappointing. So, if you were thinking about it uh, and you just hadn't got around to it, please do email us uh, thrashedoutpodcast at gmail dot com um, with any samples that you have. Uh, because yeah, still looking for guitarists, still looking for bassists, just so that we can get a good spread and we can make a good selection as much as anything. Um, uh, and uh, right. So since the last episode, uh, we have had a bunch of new patrons, and as tradition holds, I'll now read them out. They are Darren Reeds, Brian Bibb, Andrew Larson, Charles-André Lavalet-Jean, Warren Keyes, Greg Wilson, and Evan Harrison-Cass. Thank you all for becoming patrons. Yeah. Man, that's and amazing. The Thank show. you guys so much. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's awesome. Thank you very much. Uh and that is all the feedback I have from the last episode. So, Brian, tell us about the Facebook group. Okay, so on there? I'm looking at three new members of our Facebook group right now. Christopher Melkis, Torun Gronbeck, who has been a patron for a while now, and uh, Daniel Loth all joined the Facebook group recently. And I'm sure there's been more. We now have uh, 89 members in the wow. Facebook group, which is pretty awesome. Yes. Uh, and it's super active, and I love that. Like, in between the episodes... Uh, it, the conversation just keeps going, and that's where a lot of these album recommendations are coming from. I mean, just looking, uh, we saw a band called Aransi Pazuzu was a band that was recommended. Goat Snake was a yes. band that was recommended. Puppy was a band that was recommended. Um, there was new music for Lacuna Coil that I actually posted the other day because they have an album coming out. So, I mean... Beast if you, Wars. If you, yeah, Beast Wars. Yep. I mean, join the Facebook group if for nothing else just to go and get 
music recommendations to carry you through the week. But we also yeah. got uh, some good feedback on the Suicidal Tendencies episode. Uh, Dan Summers said, I hear Anthony Johnston say hybrid theory, and I pick my job off the floor and then check the date. <laughs> so, of course, you announced that at the end of the last episode. Yeah, yeah. So he was like, I-, I wasn't sure if that was a joke or not. Uh, John Himmelberger said, first turned on to these guys with the 1987 Join the Army CD, which remains my favorite. It is a great CD. Uh, joined, he said, I, he said, uh, join the army possessed to skate war inside my head, suicidal maniac. They're all classics. And that's absolutely true. A lot of those, they still play in concert. Uh, he said, I have the original CD. I know they re-recorded some of the songs on the prime cuts, greatest hits. I think it was a publishing battle or something. The originals are much better. I'm not a huge fan of the remaster stuff. I really uh. like the impurities of the old stuff. Uh, Megadeth went through their entire catalog and basically remastered everything. Not a huge fan. And I haven't given the new Metallica ones a listen yet. But I kind of, you, I get so used to the impurities of the old music from listening to them a billion times over that I miss them when they're gone. Um, Rust in That's Peace the thing. A- I, I think all the remix stuff, if you came to it fresh, if you were a young kid and you came to it fresh now, yeah, it'd probably sound fine to you because you you know you wouldn't know anything sure. different. I think they sound. I agree with you, but I think they sound odd to us because we spent so long. We've spent so many literally years listening to the original versions that the remixes, yeah, just sound weird. I mean, unless it's one of those things where it is universally agreed upon that there is a a flaw in the album, like for again for injustice for all the bass. Or for Saint Anger, the the the, the drums and the sound oh, the of those snare. drums, like yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, if they decided, oh, we're going to go back and we're going to clean that up, and we're going to, you know, we're going to bring the bass out of Injustice for All, awesome. You know, people will be all for that. But uh, but yeah, so I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the. I like the originals better. Um, and Suicidal was known uh, for remixing a lot of their stuff and throwing an extra track on albums and stuff like that. There was a, a few of their albums that had some remixes on them, and usually the originals the best. Uh, Darren Gleaton said, great discussion about a great album. Brian is absolutely right. Suicidal have never received the recognition they deserve in regard to their musical proficiency, as well as just being generally positive and empowering toward their audience. I think the relationship is basically why they have such a devoted fan base. To quote Bad Brains, they keep that PMA. He said, also, the comparisons to Testament or early Pantera are dead on, but I wouldn't be surprised if this album was in the rotation during the recording of Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic. Of course, the Red Hot Chili Peppers Mm. he's talking about. Um, I think the funk that Rob Trujillo brought to Suicidal is absolutely sort of indicative of that time you know what i mean so i could see where you would you would feel that yeah i mean it's really hard to say whether it might have been an influence because it's also contemporary but yeah it's it's all in the mix isn't it right absolutely uh kenneth white said great discussion thanks for getting me to dig out my st albums really been enjoying listening to them after years of them being at the back of the shelf their first album will always be my favorite i love the aggression of it he said very concerned about this lincoln park business though Um, actually just going back to something in the, from Darren Gleaton said, talking about the technical proficiency and not getting props for it. That's really a a common problem in metal full stop, isn't it? Like, you know, outside, outside of our circles, um, cause let's face it, you know, not all, but a, a huge majority of metal musicians are really, really technically proficient. Um, and outside of metal circles, they just do not get recognition or respect for that at all you know you look at metal drummers especially you know 
I don't think anybody except a jazz drummer could really hold a candle to some of the best metal drummers. And yet, you know, jazz drummers are revered outside of, you know, within the mainstream. They are absolutely, they are held as gods, whereas metal drummers are just looked on as big, hairy, long-haired animals who bash skins all day. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I totally agree with that. And I think when you get into some of the areas of metal that are generally scoffed at, like hair metal, for example, I think it's even worse. Mm, and so when you, when you look at, um, I'll, I'll bring up a classic, when you look at a band like Winger, now, Winger is a band who was famously made fun of by Beavis and Butthead on the MTV animated series, and it basically killed their career at the time because they were seen as the worst of the worst example of hair metal and everything that people thought was wrong with it at the time or thought that wasn't metal enough about it. And so by making fun of them on Beavis and Butthead, they basically killed their career. However, Kip Winger is not only an amazing bass player, but one of the best composers around. And then you have Reb Beach, who is a virtuoso. The guy is one of the greatest guitar players of all time. He's played with Dokken. He's played with Whitesnake. Um, and he's absolutely amazing, but great example of a band that never got that respect. And you could say that about so many bands. There's a band that all have coming up for one of our episodes where I think that is totally true. But yeah, so so certainly overall in metal, not given the credit that they deserve, but I think even in some of the some of the parts of metal that people like to scoff at, like even uh, Wes Borland from uh, Limp Biscuit, good guitar right. player, you know, but he's a great guitar player, but yeah. he's in Limp Biscuit, so right, you know, <laughs> exactly right. So yeah. people just want to crap on it. So, yeah. um, so yeah, I totally agree. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Kenneth White said, "Oh no, we just read his." Uh, Darren Gleaton, <laughs> in response to Kenneth's uh, comment about Lincoln Park, said, "I think we're all, I think we all are concerned about Lincoln Park." He said, "I was afraid Lincoln Park would pop up at some point during the run, but I figure it should still be a fascinating episode." Uh, <laughs> it's time to stage an intervention. <laughs> and what I said, because I want to come back to this, so I just want to read it real quick. I said, "I find it fascinating that Lincoln Park are such a divisive band for metal fans. I was never into them, but I remember people being super pissed when they toured with Metallica in the early 2000s." Um, and I'll come back to the reason that I right, think we can, why. When we talk about the album, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, later yeah. on. Um, let's see what else. Andrew Salmon said, I saw Infectious Grooves in Wellington back in the 90s touring uh, Sarsipus Arc, I think it was called. I can never say that name right, that album. He said, and Trujillo, Trujillo absolutely blew my mind, like some kind of oversprung bouncing toy let loose on stage but st largely passed me by so it was nice to dig into this i liked it a lot but muir's vocal style never really grabbed me which is i think what you said right Anthony? right he's not you're not a big fan that's pretty much it yeah it's like it's just something about his vocal style that doesn't just doesn't really sort of grab me but you know but like i say as i said last time you know massive respect for them and for him and he's a great clearly a great front man and a good lyricist there's just something about his vocal delivery that doesn't quite, you know, I can respect it, but I don't, you know, I don't go for it. And he said, still musically strong enough that I'll explore further. Uh, Don Cardenas said, glad I finally got a reason to dig into ST. I dug it quite a bit, but I can't honestly say I'd be rushing to hear more or replay this over and over, over other stuff. But I will be sure to keep them in mind on those days where I can't make up my mind on what I want to listen to. And then... Yeah. Uh, Scott Hall said, damn, I'm old. I actually saw them. <laughs> Aren't we old? <laughs> he, he, I know, right? He said, I actually saw them in California a few times during the time that Rob was in the band. He said, great to hear you guys giving him a shout out on the podcast. I agree with him being 
in the same conversation as Cliff Burton. Good show, uh, flashback music for me. Never really dug ST that much, but hearing you talk about it and having made the effort to actually listen to the album before the show about 10 times, I do hear what you're saying. How Will I Laugh is still my favorite. So um, great feedback on that episode. I love hearing, A, that there were people who just hadn't listened to them in a long time and dug the old albums out and and really uh, sort of gave them another listen, and then people who came to them who really kind of overlooked them back in the day and at least took something away from that. So that that's that's great to hear. And, and Suicidal Tendencies, man, one of my favorite bands. I, I mentioned that they the show that I just saw them at was the last one that they did with Megadeth on the tour, and it was it was just great to see them. If you ever get a chance to see Suicidal, go see them for sure. Yeah, I'm sure they would be an amazing band. Uh, well, and you said that they were when you saw them, yeah. Yeah, and I saw them like in, I think the first time I saw them was like 1991 or 92, and they were amazing back then. And, right. and, and you know, and here still we are amazing now. now. <laughs> yeah, still kicking it now. Um, oh, one other thing we got, which, uh, you know, UK listeners will understand why I was a bit baffled by this. We got a shout out from the Film 4 Twitter account a couple of days ago about our St. Anger episode, which, um, I don't know if like Americans know what film four is. There's a TV channel over here. Like it's run by, it's a, a subsidiary of channel four, which is one of our main network channels. Uh-huh. Um, film four is the one that just shows like lots of movies. It's a subsidiary channel that literally just shows movies nonstop 24 hours, but they are all, they also make movies and they've made like Mike Lee films. And I think, were they involved in four weddings and a funeral or something? You know, they're sort of, they're a big part of the UK film industry, and clearly, whoever runs their Twitter account listens to the show. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I, I love that. Was so bizarre, <laughs> but you know, thank you for listening. <laughs> We've had some great, and, and there was a discussion that came out of that. And of course, I don't have my Twitter up right now, but if I pull it up, there was a discussion that we ended up having off of that one tweet, where I ended up in a conversation with. Uh, a guy by the name of Chris Phillips, whose Twitter handle is Negadeth, which is fantastic, um, where we ended up talking about heavy metal for like 10 different tweets back and forth. And so that to me is one of the coolest things about doing this show is that we just randomly get in these conversations with people where all of a sudden it's like, it reminds me of that scene from Step Brothers where, where the two of them are fighting and then at one point they start talking about the same thing and they said, did we just become best friends? And he says, yep. And that was like the end of it. And it just reminds me of that moment. Like all it takes is like three or four tweets and then boom, you know, we're, we're, we're in the middle of a conversation and it just, uh, I love that. Yeah. It's, uh, and yeah, when you, you know, the, the people that you suddenly realize are listening to the show is, uh, yeah, that, that's just, you know, surreal. And I, I think I told you this on Twitter, but I ended up, I was at a show a few weeks ago. There was a book fair in a town in Massachusetts, about a half an hour north of me. So I go to this book fair and I, I have my horror novels there and, and I'm the worst uh, person ever for selling my own stuff. Like if you come by a table that I'm at at any show, I will talk about anything but my own thing that I'm there to actually like promote. That's and that's so that's... inevitably I end up talking about either heavy metal or horror, or horror movies with people. <laughs> and so we're talking and I get into a conversation with this couple and we're talking about metal and we're talking about all this stuff. And so I throw out the fact that I do this metal podcast with a good buddy of mine, Anthony Justin. And the as soon as I said your name, the dude and his wife both knew you from Fashion Beast. 
Ah, right. Yeah. They were like, oh, really? Anthony Johnson? I was like, yep. And so so I ran into a couple of your fans, and I'm sure now that they have started listening to the podcast. Hopefully they're so, listening. Hello. Yeah. So there you go. It's a small world, the way that works. Yeah. So I guess my, uh, my terrible marketing skills of my own stuff result <laughs> at least in people listening to the podcast. So that's to the good. show. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Uh, all right. So just one other thing, and then we will get to Linkin Park. And that is, uh, I said, I wasn't going to keep talking about this until we hit like another milestone. Um, but it turns out that we have, I've literally just gone to look at our metrics and in April, which considering we only put out one episode in April, uh, we have just crossed 2000 RSS subscribers for the show. Holy crap, uh, man. W- which is kind of amazing. Uh, we have doubled our subscriber numbers in the last two months. I'm getting a little scared. I might have to start dressing up for this show. <laughs> it's kind I'm in of my amazing, pajama pants and my um, my sad LA Clippers t-shirt now <laughs> after they just got eliminated from the playoffs. Uh, I am oh, I am actually wearing a Paradise Lost t-shirt right oh, now. Oh good. All right. At least so, you have your metal stuff. I'll yeah, throw my so Exodus bad. knit cap on. <laughs> Even though um, it's 70 yeah, degrees I, here. I, I'm not going to keep banging on about that, but yeah, that's quite a quite a significant new milestone to cross. So, like, wow! Thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah, seriously, thank you for listening. And and every single bit of feedback, every 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 tweet, every post on the Facebook page, every conversation is reinforces like why we do this. It, Absolutely, it, it, it and we really, see it all. We see absolutely. it all. We, we don't always respond. Sometimes there isn't time. Sometimes there isn't any need to. But we do see. You know, these are our personal Twitter accounts. We run the Facebook group. Uh, you know, the two of us are the admins. It's, yeah, you know, we see all of this. I will end our feedback segment on this email that I almost forgot to read, but I want to read right now from uh, Daniel Loaf, who uh, emailed us and also just joined the Facebook group. He said, hi, Brian and Anthony. I've been a metalhead since I first heard Painkiller back in 2004. He said, also the first album that I bought. That one right there is a nomination for an album that I could come back and talk about later. But anyways, he says, uh, <laughs> and my first concert was Judas Priest's reunion tour. But my fandom for heavy metal kind of stalled when I discovered Devin Townsend back in 2007. I had, I had a hard time finding new bands and new metal to listen to. Thanks to you both, my passion for finding new music is reignited. Thank you so much. Through you, I have discovered my second Beach album, which is The Defiled Daggers he said, which has been in constant rotation in my earphones since the episode. I just had to buy it after I heard that episode. He said, I always dismissed Linkin Park for the reason of them being emo music, but to my big surprise, I actually liked Hybrid Theory a lot, and at the moment, I'm in the hunt for Stomp 442. He said, thank you so much, P.S. If you visit Stockholm, I recommend you go to Sound Pollution in uh, Gamla Stan, which is Old Town. It's a store that sells Everything in heavy metal, punk, goth, and synth. And I highly recommend Miracle of Sound's album, Metal Up. That's, I, I love emails like that. I really do. I do too. Um, I, I, last time I was in Sweden, I was actually in Malmo uh, for a game thing rather than Stockholm. But I have been to Stockholm and it's a lovely city. Uh, and if I ever go back to Sweden again, hopefully I will make it to Stockholm. So I will, uh, I will keep that in mind. And when I get emails like that, my, respon- my responding email is like a tackle hug. It's basically like, oh my God, thank you so much for reaching out. Oh, you don't even know. This is so amazing. So I apologize to everybody that I ever email back because it's like, you would think that I've never received an email before in my entire life because I'm just like a maniac when I 
when I get those no, but emails. So. Emails like that mean so much. They really, you know, people don't think, I think people don't uh, realize how much they mean when they send emails like that, but they really do. They do. And so sometimes they might think, oh, I won't bother emailing. I'm sure they get lots of email. We don't. We don't get that much email. And every email like that really does sort of make it all worthwhile. But I think, too, when you see the Facebook page and you see the discussions that people are having or even just the tone of Daniel's email when he sent it, like, I think that as metal fans, we're all kind of like that. And I think what right. happens is, like, when we when we get into the grind of the day-to-day existence and we sort of fall out of those days when we were in high school and we were teenagers and we were listening to metal 24-7 and just living it all the time, I think that we kind of lose touch a lot of times with that stuff. And so... Being able to find that again and also find people to have these conversations with is like so it's it's so joyful and, yeah. and it's oh, so yeah. exciting. And so you're just like, oh, oh, my God, I just found another metal fan. Like we have to talk about everything right now. Let's talk about every <laughs> metal album that we've ever listened to. And uh, and it, it really is. It's like you your immediate like best friends. Yes. Yeah, f- finding your tribe, man. Yep. All right. So Linkin Park. Yeah, this was your pick, man. So are they even metal? The great controversy to which I say fucking hell, of course, they're metal. They are young men playing heavy, distorted guitars with loud percussion, screaming about how they are outsiders and all the things that are wrong with the world. How is that not heavy metal? How is that not metal? You know, I mean, when you put it that way, it's hard to argue with. Yeah, it's like, this has always been my people who, oh, well, they're not real metal. What's real metal? Don't give me that Man of War bullshit, you know. I love Man of War, but don't give me that crap. Uh, yeah, of course they're metal. For You know, new metal is still metal. Call it whatever you like. And, I mean, Linkin Park came in at the tail end of the new metal movement, really. A lot of people, when they, <laughs> a lot of reviews of this album at the time said, oh, they're a bit late to this bandwagon. This isn't going to go well. They've missed the boat. <laughs> Right. And we'll talk about how it went in a second, but, (laughs) but I do like, I'm so glad you brought that up because I feel like, and the reason that I never got into Linkin Park that much wasn't because I didn't think they were quote unquote metal, but I certainly have seen that sentiment. And I know that that was absolutely a sentiment and still continues to this day. I mean, even in some of the responses to you choosing it to talk about in this episode. And I do feel like that new metal movement was the hair metal of that period of time. Right. So you had to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know yeah, I mean? it was kind of the, the real metal people didn't like it exactly. because it wasn't heavy enough or that shit. Exactly. You know? And it had a crossover appeal that brought in a much wider audience for a period of time that some of the quote unquote hardcore fans resented. And I think that was the same thing when you talk about hair metal. It was it was, you know, it 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 had it had enough sort of poppy sensibility to it that it was very listenable to people who were not traditionally metal fans. And it brought in this whole wider audience. And when it did that, there were some people that went, wait a second, that's not, we don't want all these people over here. How can we be outside? Have we approved this? Yes. How can we be outsiders if we're all inside together now? We can't do that. Like we're so, so I do feel like that, that was a similar reaction to this type of metal. And, and even within new metal, as with every genre, and, and I'm not great with labels anyways, um, you know, in terms of how a lot of these eras get labeled, but it's such a spectrum of different oh, yeah, types of yeah. sounds that even fit within this, that what Linkin Park does is different than what some of these other bands were doing. And even though well, they it, all get sort of lumped in together. Yeah. It's like, you know, new metal encompassed everything from corn and disturbed to Linkin Park and Limp Biscuit. And none of those four bands sound anything like one another. 
but somehow they were all new metal, you know? Right. It was, uh, I mean, I re- I'm old enough to remember back when it was called rap metal, before new metal as a term was even invented. Sure. Um, it's, but it's funny you should make that comparison, because one of my, in my notes, one of the things I noted here was that this is kind of my equivalent of your Def Leppard love in yeah, a way because it, it's not mega heavy stuff and I'm not trying to claim that it is but it is really great well-written hard rock songs that kind of brush up against metal occasionally and you I know? love your passionate defense of it because that's that's the same way that I feel about that music that that hit that same spot right. on the spectrum for me, you know what I mean? And and I will say that overall, you know, going back and, and listening to this album, I I think I had said last episode, like, oh, I don't know if I have ever heard that entire album before. I certainly had. When I went back and listened to it, I had heard this entire album before. Right. Every song you're like, oh, I've heard this. Oh, I've heard this. Yeah. And, and just in general, one of the things that I liked about it was that the the singles were not bunched up on the album. You know what I no. mean? Like, the, which is kind of cool because right, usually, it's not the first four tracks on the exactly, album. Exactly, like, which yeah. was kind of awesome because because you you had these songs that you could sort of latch onto all throughout the album, which I thought was pretty cool. But yeah, going back and listening to it, I absolutely had heard that album, which which makes me think that at the time, some of my friends and maybe even roommates were were listening to it pretty heavily because I I had at least heard all of the songs on the album, and uh, and have since listened to it you know well over a dozen times. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the things I love about this album, just as a whole, is that, like, yes, these are really catchy songs, you know, which is not something that we always associate with metal, but they are really, really catchy songs. Um, But they're instantly catchy, but they don't wear out their welcome. Like, a lot of albums and a lot of songs that are immediately catchy are the ones that you go off after a while. Because they might be too simplistic or you sort of get more into the the growers on the album, you know, uh, and you sort of go off the immediately catchy ones because you maybe get a bit tired of them. But I've never found that with this album. This album, every single track on it, you know, just sounds when I put it on, it's almost like it's the first time I'm listening to it again. They are all incredibly catchy and never, ever seem to sort of get old or irritating. It's it's just masterful songwriting. Well, they also obeyed the cardinal rule, which we've talked about many, many times on the show, is none of these songs are long enough to overstay their welcome. That's which, true, yes. When you yeah. look at the total running time of the album, it's 37 minutes and 45 seconds for 12 tracks. 12 tracks. Yeah. And so there are songs in here that aren't even three minutes long. Most of the songs are not topping three and a half minutes long so the longest track is three minutes 36 exactly so and that's the the ballad you know (laughs) which i think is very smart especially for a debut album like you're you're keeping things moving the pacing of the album is just full steam ahead full steam ahead full steam ahead and even when it slows down for a bit you're on to the next song before you even know it and it doesn't give you enough time to pick out a song that just Nothing drags. Ruins the momentum of the album. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, well, it's like, like Stomp 442. Remember when I said about that, one of the things I love about that album is it just never slows down. And right. none of the tracks are very long and they just keep motoring along. And if you don't like that one, just wait two minutes. The next one will become pile driving through in a moment, you know? Right. It's the same with this album. It doesn't have the same uh, sort of, you know, strength of sonic attack and heaviness that the, the the Anthrax album does. But it has, as you say, yeah, that same momentum and energy that just keeps driving it through the whole album. Right. And so when you look at the success of this album, 
So, you know, you talked about before how it was mentioned, you know, I don't, we don't know how this is going to go because these guys are jumping in at the end of this particular era. Yeah. So this album was released in October uh, 24th, 2000, and it was certified diamond, which is 10 million plus sales by the Recording Industry of America in 2005, and it's multi-platinum in several other countries. So just to 28 put 28 million copies worldwide, 28 million. Just to put that in perspective, um, the only band of the big four that has sold has a diamond album is Metallica and they have one. And so Lincoln park also has one diamond album. So, uh, so it, to, they're in rarefied air in terms of metal bands that have sold 10 million copies of one album. Right. The commercial success. Yeah. yeah. Which is uh, something that I'll get to in a second. I just wanted to say, uh, talking about Limp Bizkit, uh, this album was released one week after like to the day after limp biscuits chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water which of course was their massive commercial hit uh, album as well so you know that re- they these two albums really do kind of define the end of the the massive new metal explosion really right um but there was uh, a lot of initial hate for linkin park this is uh this album came out when I was still working at Future, and so I was, you know, occasionally chatting to the guys on Metal Hammer and stuff, and I did a bit of freelance for them here and there uh, over the years. And uh, Linkin Park were, talking about how commercially successful they were, that was part of the problem, was that, you know, everybody, or not everybody, but, you know, a lot of the complainers were saying, oh, this, this music is just too commercial, and that's why it's not real metal. And... There were even some somehow somebody started rumors that they were a manufactured band, like a boy band, uh-huh. but for metal, like as if some impresario had said, hmm, what metal needs is a boy band. I'll construct one <laughs> of fake musicians and then I'll make millions because, you know, that's really going to work, isn't uh-huh. it? Um, and it's doubly hilarious when you actually see what they look like, because... Yeah, I mean, you know, they're not hideous, but it's not like any of them are male model material. Exactly. You know? I mean, probably the only one who is is the drummer, and he's the drummer. Right. <laughs> you You're know? never going to see him, anyways. Yeah, exactly. And it was all it was all bollocks. Um, Borden, the drummer, Mike Shinoda, and Brad Delson, the guitarist, they all went to high school together. Right. Um, you know, they had a band in high school, which the the genesis of that band became Linkin Park. Uh, Mike Shinoda met. Was that, uh, was that Zero? Was that- that's right, yeah, yeah, with an X, yeah. Uh, Mike Shinoda met uh, Mr. Hahn at art college. They were both doing, like, you know, graphic design and stuff. Um, Brad Delson roomed with Farrell, the bassist, when he was at college. I think he was studying law, for heaven's sake. So they all did, you know, kind of get to know one another organically, and because of their love of music, it's not like they were plucked out of auditions by some producer. Um the only grain, the seed of truth in it that I think is probably what allowed this rumor to fester uh, is that they, the VP of Zomba Music recommended Chester Bennington right, to them when they were looking for a new together. guitarist. Yeah. Right. But they knew him because Delson was his intern one year uh, because he you know, wanted to intern for somebody in the music business. And so that's how he got to know him. Oh, I've got this band. We're looking for a new vocalist. Oh, I know a vocalist over here who's looking for a band. You know, it's not, it's not like it was some grand master plan that was hammered out on a boardroom table. No, it's <laughs> the same kind of thing that happens all the time between yeah. bands and in local music scenes. It's just not exactly. usually involving somebody who's actually in the music industry. Right, exactly, exactly. And it, they didn't even get signed 
at first anyway, even when they did hire Benny, you know, Chester Bennington, they were like, right, okay, yeah, yeah, let's have you in the band. You're a great vocalist. They still didn't get signed. You know, they had to wait like six months or something. They played apparently like 40 industry showcases and everybody went, nah, uh, until Warner signed them. And it's, uh, you know, but that was like six months later. So, yeah, it just, the whole thing about the, the whole manufacturer thing just got me really angry at the time. And as you can tell, probably, you know, still gets me a bit angry now. Well, because again, it's, it, just, it, it's so unfair. It's so unfair. It discounts their talent and their, you know, sort of drive and determination, as especially Mike Shinoda, who's kind of the driving force behind the whole band. You know, these guys worked really fucking hard to have their success. And it makes me really angry when people sort of discount it and say, oh, well, they were handed it on a plate by some producer. And imagine if this, imagine if this was going on in the time of social media, Mm. you know what I mean? Because this wasn't even, oh God, yeah. I mean, while we had the internet for sure, it was certainly wasn't where it's at nowadays and in in terms of social media, but yeah, especially with the, you know, the culture of shitting on things that, that we now live in, like it, it would be yeah, it I mean, be, the, the, these guys would have been treated like the second coming of Justin Bieber. You know what I mean? And, and <laughs> well, the one thing that I think might be good about that is that I'm not even sure a rumor like that could actually start in this day and age because because access to the truth is oh, so sure. e- yeah. easy to come by. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's it's hard to say. It's impossible to say. You know, uh, without going back in time. But I wonder if maybe it would have even got off the ground. Whereas back in, you know, 1999, 2000, yes, the internet was around, but it was nowhere near as ubiquitous as it is now. We didn't have iPhones. We didn't have, everybody wasn't carrying around laptops uh, every day. You know, it was, uh, so yeah, access to the internet still wasn't quite as common as it is now. And I do wonder, well, social media didn't exist. So I do wonder how it would have played out there. Yeah. So I pulled up. The list of albums that were released in 2000, just to throw a couple out there, just mm. to give you an idea of what the musical landscape was at the time that this was coming out. <laughs> go okay? on, go on. <laughs> so you have Lump from the Presidents of the United States of America, if you remember that band. You had uh, The Present Darkness by Chimera. You had, uh, what else was coming out here? I'm just going down the... The thing here, ba, 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 the Crybaby by the Melvins, the Better Life by Three Doors Down, which I believe was a per- pretty popular album for them. Um, let's see what else we had. Uh, the Cure released Book of Things. Tracy Chapman released Telling Stories. Um, let's see what else we have here. ACDC Stiff Upper Upper Lip, which to me is like such an old album for like it. And when I say old, I mean late in their career album. Right. And right. that actually came out in 2000. That's crazy. Uh, Get Some Go Again from the Rollins Band. Uh, mm. Machina, The Machines of God by the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, let's see what else. Michael Shanker, Adventures of the Imagination. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Joe Satriani, Additional Creations. Pantera, Reinventing the Steel. Mm, right. Frankly, there wasn't a lot of very exciting stuff coming out that right. year. Magica it, from th- Dio, which is not one of his. Yeah, I mean, and albums. it was it was also it was uh, a year after uh, Machine Head's album, The Burning Red, which was their sort of rap metal, new metal album. Right. Um, which got gets absolutely slated. I think there's some good tracks on it. It's not the best album by any means, but there's some good stuff on it. Um, but it was generally regarded as their sort of low point 
you know, and that's an even machine hit. Um, so yeah, it really wasn't a great year for for sort of exciting metal in general. And then towards the end of the year, along come, uh, you know, Limp Bizkit's most successful album and the debut Linkin Park album. But you could and see it, how they could easily own the landscape because oh, there yeah, wasn't yeah. a ton of, like you just said, there wasn't a ton of other stuff that was just popping off of the charts. And, and so you... Just to talk about some of the platitudes that this album has gotten. So we talked about it went diamond. I mean, that right there in and of itself speaks for itself. Yeah. Um, let's see. In in 2003, MTV2 named Linkin Park the sixth greatest band of the music video era. So, uh, Well, I, I just want to leap off of that and say this is one of the things I wanted to mention was that if – because their, uh, their big sort of breakthrough hit was One Step Closer. Right. Uh, which is off this album and which has a pretty good video. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, the best video in the world, but it's a pretty good video. Um, but if, but that was their first sort of like, you know, single off of this. If you look at pretty much all of their other videos from that point onwards, uh, and this is when uh, Joseph Hahn started directing and co-directing their videos as well. Um, one of the things I noticed going back and looking at it now with the benefit of hindsight, especially is that they were really one of the first non rap, non R and B artists to make videos that looked like they came from the modern era of R and B videos. If you, if you get what I mean, they didn't look like metal videos. Like you go and look, go back and look at, I don't know, say the video for Nookie. Uh, you know, it's pretty good video or even rolling. Pretty good video, but they are metal videos. They look like metal videos. You know, corn videos at the time looked like metal videos. Linkin Parks don't. They look like R&B videos. They look like rap videos. They just happen to be playing heavy metal music. Right. And they were kind of the first band of this genre to do that. And I really think that made a big difference. And it was one of the reasons that they stood out on, I was going to say MTV, but MTV haven't played videos for years, so I don't know where people were actually watching these videos. <laughs> but, you know, when people saw the videos on TV, I think that one of the reasons why they stood out, because they didn't look like every other metal video that was around at the time. So you have uh, Classic Rock listed this as number 72 on the 100 greatest rock albums of all time. Uh, Kerrang! 50 be- best rock albums of the 2000s. This was listed as number eight. Wow. Uh, rock Hard out of Germany, the 500 greatest rock and metal albums of all time. This was listed at number 421. Uh, let's see. Best of 2001 by Record Collector. Uh, it looks like it might have... It was on that list. It doesn't say what one it was on. And it was also on another list, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. So <laughs> so apparently... Uh, regardless of of what people like to say about Linkin Park or or how they might like to disparage them like that this album in particular is one that is going to be on a lot of lists for a lot of years to come absolutely yeah yeah um it's yeah i i mean like i said it's just it's an album that doesn't wear out its welcome uh you know the if you get into it you can listen to it again and again and again and i did like what happened with me was i uh, One Step Closer was their first sort of breakout, but that wasn't the first song of theirs I heard. The first song I knowingly heard, and I mentioned that because we'll get into that when we go through the tracks, uh, was Papercut. Um, and I saw the video on at a friend's house, uh, you know, just sort of like surfing through music television video channels, um, jukebox TV channels. And I saw Papercut. 
Um, and Papercut is not their best video by any means. It's kind of naive, but it's also exactly what you'd expect a bunch of like early 20s dudes to make. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, and I remember it was a bit like what happened with The Defiled. Uh, that I remember at the time just sitting there watching it and going, because I had heard of them, but I hadn't heard anything by them, not knowingly. And I remember thinking, wow, that is way better and way heavier than what I expected from everything I'd heard people talking about them. Um, and I went out and bought the album the next day. I found it in our local record store the next day, uh, bought it, took it home, listened to it, and I basically didn't stop playing it for something like the next three months. Because uh, this was, it had been out for a while. I bought it as sort of in, you know, around about Christmas time. Uh-huh. Um, and I literally just played it almost every day for the next two or three months, even at work. Like, and even, and here's a sign, even my co-workers, who were rock fans but not metal fans, actually came to sort of put it on the, C- on the office CD player themselves. You know, it wasn't always me putting sure. it on because it had that wide appeal in it. Again, so catchy. Uh, one fun fact about the band, that their name before they turned to Linkin Park was originally Hybrid Theory. After they after Zero changed their name, and then I guess there was another act out there that was named Hybrid or something like that, and so they that's they right moved a Welsh electronic act called Hybrid, right? Apparently. So they moved yeah. to Lincoln Park, and the album was named Hybrid Theory. But I was I was reading an article from 2002 about this, and a couple things that stood out to me that they were talking about the band at the time is one they were all very savvy businessmen at the time, yes, uh, and were were sort of well regarded for having a, a good a really good way of running the band. Like everybody was responsible for different facets of the band. They had two buses that they toured with. One was sort of a recording studio bus and the other was the, uh, was the other bus that they would hang out on, but there was like no smoking. There was no, no drugs, that kind of stuff. Um, and it wasn't like a, they weren't like militant about it with the other bands that they went out with, but they just had a very sort of, thoughtful and business-like approach to making music and that, like that that was the focus is is you know performing well and and recording well and all that other kind of stuff and they just kind of had a really mature outlook for what they were doing for a bunch of guys that were in their early 20s yeah for young dudes yeah, yeah absolutely. exactly because you'd expect them to be you know uh, living the rock star lifestyle but it really doesn't seem that and the other thing that came out which i thought was really interesting too was even in this 2002 Rolling Stone interview, Chester Bennington is talking about his love of Stone Temple Pilots. So all the way back then, um, it was something that sort of came up in the discussion, which of course he went on to sing for Stone Temple Pilots in 2013. So it was kind of cool to look back at 2002 and see him, see his fandom of Stone Temple Pilots being talked about when they did an interview with the band. Yeah, it's that uh, they have always been savvy businessmen. I think it's instructive. Do you remember uh, either last episode or the episode before? I mentioned that I was reading that uh, book, Louder Than Hell. Yes, an or- oral history of heavy metal, which is very good, by the way. It's there are some places where it sort of disappointingly doesn't feature people that you think it should, but overall, uh, you know, considering it's trying to cover the entire history of heavy metal up until like the mid two thousands. Yep. Uh, you know, it's pretty good, uh, and I would recommend it to people. Um. I don't recall seeing Linkin Park, any member of Linkin Park, in that book at all. Maybe there might be a line or two from Chester, maybe, but basically they just don't, I mean, they're mentioned, but they just don't feature in it. And I think that's quite instructive because, frankly, the vast majority of that book is about 
bands misbehaving. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And they're kind of boring uh, and being in that bad way, boys is, on tour and having right? yeah having drug problems and drink problems and you know personnel problems and stuff and that's something that Linkin Park have never suffered from. I mean, we've talked about this before. They have a remarkably stable lineup. There are six of them. There have always been six of them, and uh, basically since after this first album was recorded, it is the same six ever since. Uh, and the only reason that there were there were five recording this album. Um, because the bassist, after they failed to get signed the first time, the bassist went off with another band, his other band, uh, who he thought stood a better chance of getting signed. They didn't, and he came back to Linkin Park. They asked him back after they'd recorded this album. Um, so there are a variety of people playing bass, apparently, on this album. But they never had a permanent replacement bassist for him. Uh, they just did without a bassist for a while, and then eventually he came back anyway. So basically, for the last like 17 years... This band has has the same lineup, well, which is even, kind of amazing considering the amount of success that they've had. You know, it's the bands that have the enormous success that often go through a revolving door of members as people start having problems and wanting to go off and do side projects. But Linkin Park have been very savvy about anybody. Everybody goes off and does side projects and they don't care. They're like, you go, you do your thing and then we'll come back together and do a Linkin Park album. Right. Because even when Chester went to sing for STP for like two years between 2013, 2015, he was still, Linkin Park was still around. Yep. Well, and Mike Shinoda, you know, like almost as soon as Linkin Park had any success, he was off doing side projects left right and center right and like i say he's kind of you know he's kind of the boss of this band he always has been so when even he's buggering off and doing side projects right pretty much immediately he doesn't have a lot of ground to stand on to stop anybody else but i got the impression i always got the impression that he wouldn't want to because he is a very sensible businessman and i think as we've talked about before i think he realizes that if you don't give people that outlet you'll lose them anyway. They'll just go, well, then I'll quit. Well, I mean, yeah. How many bands have imploded because of that? Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I was looking back to in the early 2000s and, and that, uh, that particular Metallica thing that I brought up when we were reading feedback mm. earlier about, you know, them going out on tour with Metallica. So it was 2003. In February 2003, it was announced that there was going to be a summer tour with Linkin Park, Limp Biscuit, and Metallica. And when that tour was announced, I remember the <laughs> collective heads of the hardcore metal community basically exploded. Um, people just lost their minds about that. It was like it was seen as like the that, that this is it. It's all over now. Metal, heavy metal. Is this over. is the end of Metallica. This is like, the end yeah, of Metallica. Yeah. This is the end of everything else. And the funny thing was, I remember the anger about that being directed really a lot at Lincoln Park and definitely Limp Bizkit as well, but not at Metallica. It was, it was like, it was basically like how, how dare these bands infect what we know to be heavy metal. I can't believe they don't, they don't deserve to share the stage with Metallica. And, and what I thought was funny about that is that, you know, when you look at that time period, I think that is much more of a reflection of how sort of poppy that Metallica had become and how mainstream that Metallica had become than than anything having to do with those other two bands. You know what I mean? Like that, that to me just seemed like, um, like a sign of the times at that point, because Metallica by 2003, were not the same band that we had all grown up listening to. And they had already had the black album 
and they had that was their mainstream album. So they they yep, are yep. they were already firmly entrenched in mainstream, I would say rock music and you know rock slash heavy metal as opposed to thrash metal, which you know is what they sort of came up as. And so to to me that made a lot of sense that the three of those bands were going out together because that wasn't that wasn't the same Metallica anymore. But it was funny because Linkin Park caught a lot of heat for that, and uh, and Limp Bizkit caught a lot of heat for that too but i'm pretty sure that every date on that tour was probably sold out if we went back and looked at tickets oh i'm so, sure yeah so yeah. with all the hand wringing and hemming and hawing about you know what a horrible thing it was for me like i'm sure they did just fine yeah yeah well and actually one of the things that comes through talking about that book again one of the things that comes through is which doesn't always isn't always obvious to fans and certainly doesn't come through in some sections of fandom of heavy metal is how much the bands don't care about that oh no. Do you know what i mean yeah. about how like the heaviest people like slayer are friends with guys from motley crew and you know the guys from disturbed are friends with linkin park or whatever you know they the bands themselves they just don't care because they know they're all in it together they've got the shared experience they've all been in the trenches they know what it takes to succeed as a band on that sort of scale um and they for just the bands that do have it like they grow out of it you know, like right. uh, even the bands yeah. that that you know w- were were hanging on to that type of mentality. Well, they are, they either grow out of it or they turn into Axl Rose. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or or they end up isolating themselves and only hurting yeah. their own career in the end. But even you know, even some of the most heated rivalries in you know heavy metal and rock and roll and everything, they all die away because yeah. eventually people realize that it doesn't matter if we're going to go out together and tour and we can sell more tickets that way. Then that benefits everybody. So who gives a crap? Right, and you know, are you a decent guy more than yes? Is your band heavier than mine? Right, because sometimes the hard hardest of the hardcore may not be a band that I want to go out and tour with because it's a nightmare to tour with them, as opposed to a band, you know, like Lincoln Park, who seems like they kind of have it together and are probably pretty easy to tour with. Right, I imagine they would be a delight to tour with exactly. compared to a lot of bands. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. So, uh, um, so yeah. actually talk, talking about the whole sort of like good boy, bad boy stuff. That's one other thing about this album that cracked me up. Um, uh, you've probably noticed or maybe not, uh, but you, once it's been pointed out to you, you'll notice there is no swearing on this album. Yeah. Not, which may not album. sound like a big deal, but at the time that was a really big deal. Like, like this is a metal album and there is no swearing on it. What are they trying to do? And this was, again, part of the conspiracy theory about, oh, they're, you know, being manufactured as a radio-friendly band. They don't swear, blah, 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 which they, you know, they immediately started swearing on the second album, possibly even reaction to people's, to people's reaction to this. But I remember it was a huge deal at the time. It's like, how dare they call themselves a metal band and they don't swear? <laughs> which is kind of awesome because, first of all, um, that's a brilliant move if you do want to get on the radio is not yep. having to worry about having to edit out any of the stuff from your songs. No weird bleeps and silences, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, and you don't need it. So, Well, that's the other thing, yeah. yeah. Do you, I mean, I, you know, I swear like a trooper. And oh, me too. I, yeah. I, yeah, I have no problem with it, but at the same time, you know, you don't necessarily need it. No. There's no, just because you might choose not to do it doesn't make it any lesser. So, yeah. Right. I just remember that at the time. It absolutely cracked me off. But it was like, really? This is what you're going to get upset about? I know, right? <laughs> the fact that they're not screaming motherfucker every other line. Right, <laughs> exactly. Like that's So we, we, you want more of that is what you're saying. You want to yeah. add that in here. Okay, okay. Yeah, all right. Let's do that. Let's do, oh. let's do a remastered version where we just yeah. add in a whole bunch of F-bombs left and right. Oh, um, they really should. They wouldn't that be so... <laughs> right, just to show how awful it would be. Um, a couple oh, more g- general thoughts just before we jump into the track by track. I mean... 
this I don't want to say that there's a formula, but there's they certainly have a a general pattern to their songs when I listen to this album and, and oh, sure, the yeah. way it's that l- the the way that Chester's vocals uh play off of its Mike, right? Who who does yeah. the uh Mike Shinoda, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The way that the way that they sort of play off of one another, the way that they structure you know the the verses and the chorus and stuff like that is is something that you get into the rhythm of when you start listening to I think especially after the first couple songs like you you fall into the groove of what it is that they're doing which I think for a debut album is not necessarily a bad thing but there's definitely sort of a a pattern to to how the songs play out I think it, it struck me as I listened to this whole album this is like the ultimate high school breakup album you know, like, because every song is just like, you don't understand me. I'm all alone. Nothing yeah. is ever worth it. Like, it's just like yeah. the ultimate, like, <laughs> I hate everything. Um, Like, it was almost like every member of the band just went through the worst breakup they ever had right before they recorded this album. And then well, this and album- some songs are actually about abuse as well. Not just like your sort of girl problems and stuff, but, you know, uh, about actual abuse and real problems as sure. well. Like, yeah, maybe breakup's the bad word for it, but just like, 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 destructive relationships and that feeling of isolation and that feeling of, you know, needing to get away from people and stuff like that. Like, it, which if you're an 18 to, you know, a 16 to 20 year old. Oh yeah. Yeah. Dude. Just like, I mean, this, this thing was just tailor made for you to tap into every emotion that you have and all that angst and everything. And which I think for, for all of us growing up in the, in the music that we listen to, like there are certain albums that just did a great job of tapping into that chaotic emotional time of your life. And even going back and listening to this album. Now you can see like, boy, Man, if I was a certain age when I listened to this album, it probably would have become one of my top ten albums of all time. You right, know what I mean? You like can it, see it how they became totally, so massive. Yeah, yeah. you can yeah. totally see how this like just spoke to a core group of people in a way that every song, just one after another, just like tapped into everything that they were going through. You know, I mean, dude, I was twenty eight when this album came out. You know, <laughs> that was a pretty long way from those sort of, you know, teenage emo feeling years. And it still spoke to me. Sure. I still got it. You know, I was like, I wasn't that far away that I couldn't remember yeah. what it felt like to no, be No, I had age. a fight with my wife this morning after I listened to it on the way back home from the grocery store, just because it, it had me all fired up, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's, you I know. I putting really... the groceries away. I said, you don't understand me. Uh, nobody understands me. Right? I'm going to my room. <laughs> Oh wait, it's your room as well. <laughs> right, exactly. Can I go up in the? Can I go upstairs by myself for a little while? By myself? Do you mind? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh man! All right, all right. Uh, let's get to the tracks then before we uh, before this becomes a four hour show. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, yeah, as we said, twelve tracks, uh, thirty eight minutes, thirty seven, and you know, mostly thirty eight minutes. Uh, yeah, average between three minutes and three minutes thirty. So really, you know, short again. People would say poppier, more commercial songs, but you know, remember, I just think tight. You know what I mean? Hey, like, remember, not, you're not wasting a lot of time. I remember, paranoid is less than two and a half minutes long. Uh-huh. That's all I have to say about that. And imagine uh, if it was four or five minutes long. Exactly, it'd be terrible. Um, and yeah, longest track, as I say, is the ballad, which is three. But that, even that's only three minutes thirty-six. Um, it was the best-selling debut album of the decade, according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong. Uh, which is kind of amazing. Um, and it kicks off with. Papercut, which was one of the singles off the album. Papercut, 
And my favorite song on the album by A Country Mile. Oh, really? The very first track? Absolutely. Wow. Yep. Uh, and, and which I love it because the fact that it is my favorite song in the album makes this an album that's very easy to go back and listen to. Because right, that first right. song is always the one that I want to hear. And, uh, and then once I'm into an album, as we've talked about before, I have a tough time skipping anything. So I'll just listen through to the, to the whole thing. But yeah, I really, really like... I just really like the flow of it. I think with with the cadence and the and how this song is delivered, it gives you a perfect it, it showcases perfectly what you're going to get from this album. Yes. Like it, yes, it, it, it just is it's just a if someone said like give, give me a Linkin Park song. Like I want to hear what 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 Linkin Park sounds like. What is their sound if you could pick one song? Like this is a song that I would pick. Play them say, this song. Yep. Yeah. You listen yeah. to the song, you know exactly what you're getting from Linkin Park and you'll know right away if this is something that you like or you don't like. And and this one hooked me. This is a song that that uh really gets stuck in my head and I like the lyrics, you know? Like like yep. um I know I've got a face in me points out all my mistakes to me. You've got a face on the inside too. And your paranoia is probably worse. Like that to me, that, that sort of self-critical, and this goes back to what you were saying before, they're not all sort of breakup songs. Um, that, that sort of self-critical, the voice inside your head that, that makes you hold yourself back like that, that resonates with me now, at, right now at this age, like I, th- I think anybody who, yeah, who, yeah. uh, in any walk of life, but certainly as someone who tries to make things, as someone who tries to right, write stories right. and and try to uh, and wants to share those stories with other people in hopes that they like them. I mean, even doing a podcast and hoping that people will listen and hoping that people will, you know, appreciate the thing that you make. Uh, this is a powerful song because your own worst enemy is yourself. You're the one yeah. that that is often the most critical voice. You're the one that is often um, the one who can't get out of their own way. And so this song, to me, on a lot of levels, spoke to me, but also musically, I think it's just a great example of their sound. Yeah, I think anybody who's just like emotionally self-aware uh-huh. really would, you know, would un- would sympathize with the lyrics and get into these lyrics. Um, yeah, this was the the first track of theirs that I, as I said, it was that video that I watched was this song. So this was the first track of theirs that I knowingly heard. And it was the one that I was like, oh, okay, I like this. Let's go and see if the rest of the albums like it, you know. And I um, like when, when uh, you know, that, that, that sort of break where, where Chester singing the sun goes down and, and yep. he's... I feel the light betray me. Yeah, just that, what, like... What a great line. First of all, it shows his range, right? Because yes. that particular part of the song, he's singing as cleanly as he sings on right. the album. Right, it's the bit that proves he can actually sing. Exactly. And you sort of get three versions of him You on this album. You get screamy version, which is, you know, just all out anger, angst, you know, in, in certain parts of certain songs. You get the sort of Bon Scott rough-edged, uh, where his voice sounds kind of gravelly, but he's still showing a bit of range. And then you get the clean vocal, more melodic uh, right. sort of singing. Full-on melodic singing. And, and that's yeah. what you get a taste of here with Mike sort of 
sort of speaking the most powerful parts of the song over the top of that. And I just think that that works really, really well with this song. And so for me, this song is my favorite in the album. I I think it's just the total package for what they bring to the table. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love about it is that, and I timed this, the first 15 seconds of this song immediately tell you what you're going to be in for, like musically. Because you've got the hip hop beats yep. to start it, you know, with the drum machine coming in. Uh, you've got the scratching immediately. Han is there scratching, and I love how uh, most of his scratching work is basically percussive. He's kind of, and forgive me, but he's kind of like the clown face of Linkin Park because he's basically a percussionist. That's right. what most of his uh, scratching is. He is also in charge of samples and, you know, firing off samples on keyboards and stuff. But most of his actual scratching is used as percussion. And it is here as well. Then you get the big guitar chords, you know, the sort of like da 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 And then the rapping. And you're like, oh, okay, okay. So right. and that's within 15 seconds. So you're like, okay, this is rap metal. And then uh, 50 seconds in, that's when Chester comes in and starts belting out the chorus. And that's the moment when you're like, whoa, oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. You know, this is something a bit different. Um, and the main guitar line too is, is interesting. Cause it dun, 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 dun. Yes, like just, that's yes. a, that's a cool, that's just a cool sort of, uh, cadence. It's a good rhythm. Yeah, it's, a it's good exactly riff. like it's a, it's a, it's a, coo- it's not thrash, but it is palm muted chords. You know, that's metal. <laughs> yeah. And just the way they deliver it is, it, it's good. It's all, it, all of that works very well together. And I think there are certain songs on this album where the, where, and again, I, I'm not using it in a derogatory man, manner, but like where the formula works. And this yeah. is a song where, where it just works. Yeah, it really is. Uh, but even then, and this is another case, and I talked about this on some of the other albums that I've picked. This is a case where you have a fairly simple song structure. You know, there's nothing very complex about this song structure, but what they do is drop in little details that give it complexity and give it a bit of extra depth, like the intro, which is just unusual, you know? Right. It's a far cry from, you know, the beginning of Fight Fire with Fire with the acoustic guitar or something, isn't it? You know? <laughs> well, and that's um, where having the, the, you know, the hip hop element and having, um, you know, ha- being able to add in samples and stuff like there's a layer that they can, if you took that out of this band. Oh, it would sound very, very different and quite dull. Yeah. Yes. And so yeah. it, it really, it's, a, it's an essential part of the band's sound. Absolutely. And that's kind of what I like about these guys is that each piece is needed in order yes. for this band to realize their sound. Yes. If you absolutely. took any of those parts away, they would be a lot less for it. And that's yes, not the would. case with all of these bands that have different elements that they're trying to put together. Like I, I, I would, I'm, I'm probably going to get flack from this from Incubus fans, but I don't. I don't think Incubus is a like th- their elements don't work as well together for me when I try to listen to their music. Uh, some of that stuff feels forced. With these guys, it feels like each of their of the elements of this band is necessary, and if you took one of them away, you just wouldn't have. They just wouldn't, wouldn't stand out at all. Yeah, they yeah. just wouldn't. It, it wouldn't. It wouldn't have the same punch. Yeah, absolutely. No, it is all, you know, it's all kind of parts of a whole. Um, and yes, as you're right, if you, as you say, if you took a part out, you may not realize it. Like, you know, again, with Hans, because Hans scratching is so, is used mainly for percussion, you almost don't notice it in a lot of tracks. But if you took it out, you know, when you listen for it, you realize that if you took it out, 
there's a whole layer of percussion on almost all of these tracks that just would not be there. Right. And the track would feel empty right. uh, as a result. Yeah. It would feel lighter. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it just wouldn't have the same punch for sure. Yeah, it, it adds to the heaviness, yep. uh, which is kind of crazy. You know, a turntable is adding to the heaviness, but, you know, much like with Slipknot, that is that is the effect. But that's where I feel like these guys, where you can point at these guys and say they're not a gimmick band because they're not none of no, those because it's fully incorporated exactly it's, like, it's like, like with it's like with mike and chester's vocals yes you know and, and i remember them actually directly addressing this in an interview many years ago um you know about how they'll swap around it's not that mike raps all the verses and then chester sings all the choruses right. you know that's it's not that straightforward they do whichever bit sounds right for the song and on some of the later albums mike even sings Right. You know, and on some of the earlier albums, uh, Chester does a little bit of, you know, quasi rapping. I mean, he's not very good at it, but, you know, he does it. Um, it's more about like we have two vocalists, well, like Lacuna Coil. You know, right. we have two vocalists and we're just going to use them where appropriate. Right. We're not, the song will not, tell us how it needs to be. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Let the song inform how we use the, their voice instruments precisely. Yep. All right. So uh, track two is One Step Closer. is two and a half minutes long right and and this is of course the big single this is the single that really launched them and was a massive breakthrough um and you know come on that is a great riff it is like a great that riff. is a really great riff and i love the up and down nature of it you know what i mean it's like one oh, it's, two it's three bouncing. four one yeah. two three four like it just really works very well yeah, yeah, it's a real bouncing riff. I think this is the main difference between new metal and, you know, old metal, for want of a better description, uh, is that it's true to say you can't really headbang to Linkin Park, but what you can do is mosh. Yes. You could, you know, no, you can't headbang, but you can mosh. And there is a difference between those two things, but moshing is just as metal as headbanging. And you really can mosh to a lot of this band's music because it gets you bouncing up and down. Right. Yeah, there's definitely a bounce to it. And I feel like this, from an album standpoint, what a great one-two punch. Yeah. You come out with Paper Cut, and then you come right back with this song. And it's like great couple of opening songs, which really get you locked into the album. Yeah. Well, and here's a good example, actually, we were just saying, of uh, you know the vocals. Most of the vocals, 99% of the vocals on this are Chester. You know, all Mike does is a few back in. Right. bits in the background you know there's no real it's not like he comes to the front and raps for a verse or anything on this um so but that's because they this is clearly what the song required was yeah you know uh all chester and a little bit of mike 
I also like how the riff starts out with just guitar, and then after the first line, the bass kicks in, and yes. then the bass follows the the lead riff, which I think is really awesome. I love considering that the bass. There are three different people who play bass on this album, according to who you believe. Uh, and maybe all three of them did on various different tracks. Who knows? But considering that, considering that it's not actually the regular bassist playing, it's kind of amazing how vital the bass is to a lot of these songs and how high it is in the mix as well. Right. And this is a song where it is definitely high in the mix when it kicks in. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I, what I love especially about this track i mean famously this is the you know shut up when i'm talking to you track everybody knows that one you know and everybody sings along at gigs with it um but what i love about this song is the pre-chorus where everything drops out uh and then you know sort of like bangs back into the chorus it's so simple but it is so effective uh and then on the second time he does it brad delson hits these harmonics in time with the snare drums uh just as a sort of you know Bit of anger, bit of aggression, not too much, but a bit. Yeah, I do uh, like then, that you know, too. That's, a, again, that's a nice little piece of flair. Yeah, and then again, just sort of crashes back into the chorus. And, and it has this yeah. industrial feel to it too, you know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, it's really, it's. I do like that. And of course, the, the shut up when I'm talking to you, like he just delivers that with such ferocity yeah. that it you can't help but sort of sing along to it. it, it, it the vocals are very heavy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chester's vocals are one of the heaviest things about this band, you know, make no mistake. Sure. Especially um, when he lets loose. And this is one of the songs where he is, you know, he's just letting it all out. Right. Yeah. He really is. Yeah. Uh, I'm not actually sure what this song's about exactly, but it wouldn't surprise me if this is the one that's, that's about abuse, frankly, just from his vocal performance. Right. All right. And then uh, from that, we're going to track three, which is With You. This song, I don't think it's a misstep, but it's definitely, it's definitely, I felt like taking your foot off the gas a little bit from the first two. Oh, really? Uh, I like the chorus, but I feel like this is one of the songs where Mike's rapping is just not like, again, if he, if he was, if he was just rapping, he's not an amazing rapper. So this is one of those songs where I feel like that's kind of exposed a little bit. Um, and this song just didn't, just doesn't blow me away. Like it, it's melodic enough, especially with the chorus where it's fine. And again, it's only three minutes long, but it's not one of my standout songs on the album for sure. Hmm. I, I like, 
uh, I think it's a really good track. I love the the little electronics that lead into it. I think that's that's good and sounds good. Um, but that main riff as well, the chorus riff, that's like some serious heavy drop tuning. You know, that's uh, and you know, again, forgive me, uh, Slipknot fans, but if I heard that in the chorus of a Slipknot song, I wouldn't be surprised. Do you know what I mean? That's, oh, yeah. that's yeah, really quite that, heavy. Yeah. Um, and the key change when they go from the verse to the pre-chorus is really discordant. And that's kind of, you know, that's quite brave to, in, a, in a band that are clearly aiming for commercial success right. and not trying to make something, you know, this, uh, this isn't Morbid Angel. They're not trying to make <laughs> something that's going to make people, you know, go, what is this that's noise? That's true. I don't think anybody would accuse them of being Morbid Angel. You're right. Right. <laughs> But I mean, so to to have a key change that is that discordant in a song like this is actually quite musically brave, I think. Um, and also, if you listen in the background of the chorus, there's a really high-pitched sample playing constantly throughout the chorus. It's a really jarring. Once you notice it, you're like, oh, God, and it really sort of maintains yeah, it's the like tension. Yeah, it's like that... Sort of, yeah, in yeah. In the background, just, there, yeah, yeah. Except it's really it's high pitched, like you said. Really high pitched, really tinny, yeah. So, um, I mean, no, I wouldn't say that this is the best song of the album, but I think there are enough nice parts of it that you know maybe I like it a bit better than you. Yeah, I, I do really like this track, and one of the reasons for that is just because actually it's the pre-chorus, not the chorus, has that really deep drop tuned quite heavy riff and i think that kind of elevates the whole song uh-huh but you know each to his own <laughs> yeah right <laughs> uh all right and then track four is points of authority forfeit the game before somebody else takes you out of the frame and put your name to shame cover up your face you can't run the race the pace is too fast it just won't last I really like this song. Yeah. This is one of my favorite. It, this is maybe my second favorite. No, nah, maybe not, but it's right it's right up there with like my top 3 songs on the album for sure. Oh, it's one of my favorites too. Absolutely, yeah. Um interesting f- little fact about this one. Um apparently this was written when Brad Delson wrote a riff uh and then you know went home. Uh and after he'd gone home, Mike Shinoda took that riff and chopped it up in Pro Tools. Uh, and sort of like rearranged bits of it and stuff. And that's what the riff that you now have on the song is. But as a result, when Delson came back in the next day, he had to relearn his own riff. Well, it feels very... Because <laughs> it was um, no longer his riff. <laughs> it has this sort of stilted feel to it, right? You know, it the, really the sort does, of stuttered, yeah. stilted feel to it. One of the things that I love about this song is the hammer and anvil sound in the background that just gives it a real industrial metal factory sort of feel 
Yeah. Um, I really, really like, and they do that on a couple of songs, but this one, I think it just so perfectly matches the beat of the song on the downstrike that it just, it just drives, it just makes the song a lot heavier. I love the main riff. Um, I love Mike's, Mike's rhythm. And, uh, and I actually really like the lyrics of this song too. Like I, I just, this song just has a great flow to it and it feels heavy at the same time. Yeah, this is uh, this is probably my overall. You're talking about Mike's rapping on the last track. This is probably my overall favorite track for his rapping. I think this is one of his best performances. There's something about the delivery and the cadence. It's the of delivery. It. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. Like forfeit the game before somebody else takes you out of the frame. Just the way he, just the way that flows and how he delivers each line and and with the riff in the background, it just. This is one of those songs where it all works together very well. Yeah. It, Hans samples and scratching are great. Even the drumming stands out on this track. Agree. You know, Ch- Chester's great. Um, Whereas and I then, th- it's funny because I made a note on the last song with you where I thought the drum beat was super generic. Like I thought right. the drums on With You were not anything to write home about. Whereas on this one, it feels like uh, from a musicianship level, like all of all of it is back on par with like paper cut for me. Like yeah. this was where it, it was like, oh, okay, here we're, we're back in it now. Yeah, everybody's firing on all cylinders. Exactly. On this. Yep. Uh, and then you get that cut up electronic stuff at the end, where again they're cutting the guitar. I really like that too, along with the scratching. Yeah, I love that. That's uh, that's the kind of, and again, you know, yeah, okay, it's you can look back on it and say that a few bands were doing that at the time, but it really wasn't very common. And now, of course, you know that sort of thing is quite common, but it really wasn't common at the time. And that was one of the things that helped them stand out was that they clearly and they showed it with the remix album that they did after this which was they released an album uh which was literally just a remix of this entire album Uh remixed by like metal and hip-hop artists um and it's great i mean it's a really really good album but you know by doing things like that and doing the electronic cut-up stuff here and all the sampling at the end of the track showing that yeah they're not going to be bound by genre that they're not going to do oh no we can't do that because it doesn't fit with, you know, with with a genre that we're being ascribed to. They're clearly just doing it because well, it sounds good, so do it. Right, and it worked. And like I said, this is one of those songs where I feel like everything works really well together on the album. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and then uh, track five, the emo track, crawling. Which obviously, I mean, everybody knows this song. I think I everybody assume. knows this song, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> it really is. It's the most emo track on the album. <laughs> yeah, and again, this is not. Th- this is one of those angst 
you know, songs that I think spoke to a lot of people when it first came out. And uh, oh, totally, yeah, yeah. I know that this one definitely is about abuse because Chester's talked about that in interviews. Um, I think it's an absolute corker, this track. I mean, yes, as I say, I know people take the mick out of it for being completely emo. Well, and, and it's it is- hard too because it's so it was so overplayed that right, that yeah. you you know you it's one of those things where you start to get jaded against a song even though it could be a phenomenal song because you just hear it so many times and i think that well, was one like of the cases with this. Yeah. yeah exactly i think this is this song is sort of guilty of that too but if you step back and listen to it like there was a reason it was that popular yeah it is very simple musically but really really effective it has a great chord structure uh and for me this is chester's best performance on the record um, which is just as well because half the time it feels like he's singing without any backing. There's a lot of the parts of, of this song where it almost feels like, you know, it's just him singing a cappella or something. Um, well, and his, but and he his puts in a really great, great performance in the song. Yeah. Like uh, just his when he's singing clean, it just he just sounds great in the song. Uh, keyboards uh, work well throughout as well on this, which I think whenever you get sort of you know keyboards like that, I think that's Mike Shinoda playing them. Well, and this is where they do a good, a good, like, this is one of those songs where they do a really good job of capturing emotion in the, the, so a lot of their songs are sort of on like, you know, being on the knife's edge of like completely losing control and just the, the single notes that are being played by the keyboard have that very fragile sort of feel to them. And then yeah, when it, yeah. it almost, and you almost sort of topple over into the main riff of the chorus where it is like you just fell off the knife's edge and then boom, they hit the, they hit the chorus and and he's singing, you know, with the much more gravelly and just sort of emotional sort of kick to it. And so I I feel like that from an emotional standpoint, that, that keyboard and those notes really play off of the tone of the song. Well, no, absolutely. There's a lot, a a lot of this song is about dynamics because as I say, it is quite simple musically, but it's got great dynamics and they rely on that to sort of, carry the song through um one little detail that i do like however is uh after the second verse or you know sort of pre-chorus um they draw out the the last line is i felt this way before so insecure uh and the second time that he sings it they draw it out so that it lasts one extra bar normally it's like he draws it so insecure and it lasts like one bar and then into the chorus but this time it lasts two bars and that really you're waiting for it to end because you've heard it before so you're waiting for the one bar and then into the chorus and it doesn't and he's still holding that note and it goes on for a whole extra bar and you just kind of there's all this tension and you're just waiting for it to drop and then bang into the chorus and yeah you know that massive release that you get from going into the chorus with the big guitar chords and stuff that's really again nice little detail really smart songwriting yeah and the lyrics are good too you know there's something inside me that pulls beneath the surface consuming confusing uh and then this lack of self control this lack of self control i feel is never ending just yeah. great lyrics there yeah they really are it's uh as i say i i know that this one is about uh abuse and so they're probably quite personal lyrics but they are yeah really really good um also this track has a lovely dead stop at the end uh and you know long-time listeners will know <laughs> that always earns you points like for your me. songs to end yep almost every track on this album has a proper finish in fact i think every track on this album has a proper finish i don't think any of them sort of repeat to fade um and they're all good finishes as well they're all you know they're like good powerful finishes that bring it to a good stop so yeah that that all gets massive thumbs up from me 
Uh, and that dead stop leads into track six, which is Runaway. Yeah, what do you think of this song? Where does this song fit for you amongst the others? It is not my favorite on the album. Yeah, me neither. Uh, it's, it's, you know, sort of fairly standard heavy rock. I feel um, like this is the song that created the band Edema. <laughs> the thing is, right, for like 80% of the song of this, I would say, okay, fine, we could probably lose this on the album. But then you get to the bridge. The bridge, which is the, uh, you know, I'm going to run away and never say goodbye. Yeah, where he's screaming. Bit. Yeah. And holy shit. Suddenly it gets really heavy. Yeah, yeah, very you, heavy. You've got that kind of uh, Tom Morello style sort of stuttering guitar that yep. leads into it. And then, you know, bang, really down-tuned heavy riff. And Chester is, yeah, proper screaming. Yeah. Um, but that chorus I, I get, to me, like, and, and I say Edema because I saw them, I think, one year on OzFest. And the chorus of this song is like that entire band in the span of like 10 <laughs> seconds. It really was like, it, like yeah. go, if you've ever listened to a demon, go back and listen to him. But, uh, oh, man. but, and, but yeah, it, I feel like, I feel like other bands were formed from this song. You, like, you may well be right. Imitations yeah. of Lincoln park were formed off of this song. Cause it, <laughs> cause it is kind of a, um, it's I think good, it's a pretty catchy, radio-friendly song, yeah. Right, it's a good, catchy, heavy rock song, you yep. know. But then you get that bridge. And I remember, like, some of my non-metal friends, if I would play them this album, we'd get to this track and they'd go, Whoa! you know, because it's like, that bridge is so heavy, that dun 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 massively down-tuned, and the drums are pounding. Yeah, and in the background they're singing, gotta run away, gotta run away. I mean, it works, it plays off of itself well. Yeah. So again, it kind of, I think that just saves the track. You know, it's, uh, if it weren't for that, then maybe I would say, oh, okay, well, you know, we can discard this track, but I think you've got to keep it for that because that's one of the heaviest moments on the whole album <laughs> in the middle of this radio friendly rock track. Yep. Uh, all right. And then track seven is by myself. Stand up, getting hurt again by myself. I ask why. But am I? 
And I'm interested this time to hear what you think of this. Um, I think that the strongest thing of this song to me is the lyrics. Like I, I really like some of the lyrics in the song. If I, if I let them go, I'll be outdone. But if I try to catch them, I'll be outrun. If I'm killed by the questions like a cancer, then I'll be buried in the silence of the answer. That's, I just love that. I think those lyrics are, yeah, they're awesome. Like that, that, so lyrically is where this song sort of spoke to me. Right. Well, and uh, this is another one where they kind of hide the heavy riff because they open with a pretty heavy riff. Right. Again, and again, like there's some great percussion sounds and stuff, you know, hammer and anvil again, as you said. Um, uh, But then you realize that that's not the verse and it's not even the chorus. They kind of hide it in the pre-chorus. But that, to me, is the most memorable bit of the song. <laughs> this, but you know. I, I agree. I mean, this song, uh, other than lyrically, the only real thing that stood out to me about this song is that it has the same hammer and anvil effect that, um, what was it, Points of Authority had, where right. you can sort of hear that hammering away in the background. And so it, it registered with me again of like, oh, they did that again here, and it worked It worked pretty well in this song, too. Not as well as it did in the other one. Um but still pretty well. Yeah, yeah. and I didn't I what kind of threw me off of this song was the chorus. I didn't really care for the way the chorus was delivered where he's, you know, um it's not the best chorus on the album, it must be said. Right. Um, and I'm trying well, to remember what the lyrics of the chorus was, but it was uh I can't hold on uh, to what I want when I'm stretched so thin. It's all too much to take in, blah blah, you know. It's it's not their it's not their greatest or even their catchiest chorus. Um, Where he's saying, but, but in my mind, I find like that to me. I know, but that's the pre-chorus. Oh yeah, the pre-chorus. Right, and that's that... what I was going to say. The pre-chorus, on the other hand, I love because this is the only part of the album where you get. Uh, I mean, we've talked about the interplay between Chester and Mike. It's which where is Chester's great. doing it instead of Mike. Right, but what they do is they swap. They swap literally mid-line. You listen to that. You listen to that again, and you realize that they're literally saying like three words each, alternating uh, in that pre-chorus right. while you've got the heavy guitars going on. That's the only place on the album where they do it, and it works really well. It shows that they sort of work well together as contrasting and complementary vocalists. Yep, it's a, it, it's not one of my standout tracks on the album, but no. uh, but I do like it lyrically. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then we get to the ballad in the end. It starts with one. I don't know why it doesn't even matter how hard you try. Keep that in mind. I'm designed just trying to explain in due time. All I know time is a valuable thing. Watch it fly by as the pendulum swings. Watch it count down to the end of the day. The clock takes life away. It's so unreal. Didn't look out below. Watch the time go right out the window. Trying to hold on to didn't even know or wasted it all just to watch you go. I kept everything inside and even though I tried, it all fell apart. What it meant to be will eventually be a memory of a time I tried so hard and got so Yeah, but I mean, is is it that much more of a ballad than um, what you call it? Than like crawling, you know what I mean? Like I don't. Oh God, yeah. 
Yeah, it starts with like a solo piano line. Yeah, but I, I mean, I guess I don't feel like it's it, – and again, I don't want to use formula in a derogatory way, but I don't feel like this is such a diversion from what the rest of the album is doing. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a ma- it's not a massive diversion. I mean, you know, usually like a ballad on an album, especially like in the in the eighties. Most of the times, the ballad right. is just like just light years away from whatever else was happening on the album. And here, I don't. I think it's, it's a not more light years I think away, it's a no. more contemplative melody than some of the right. other stuff. But I don't feel like it's. It's not like it's not like every rose has its thorn. You know what I mean? Like it's not this acoustic. <laughs> yeah, certainly not. It, yeah. it doesn't like lack any punch whatsoever. Right. Well, and like I say, I mean, I call it the ballad, and I'm I'm slightly joking. Uh, but I mean, it is. It's the closest thing to a ballad on the. I album. will agree with that for sure. Um, Absolutely. But but you're right that it doesn't deviate that far from the rest of the because album. the chorus is kind of, it's a soaring chorus. You know, it and really that, is. Although it, the lyrics a, are are not. Soaring. Then they're, they're a little they're a little naive. Um yeah. I'll tell you what, this is a great one to do at karaoke uh with that chorus. It really- <laughs> oh I'm sure. Um but I and you know, yeah, it's not very heavy, but but I would rather listen to this than nothing else matters, for example. You okay, know? yep. Partly because of that chorus. Um I also think this is Mike's second best rapping track on the album. Um, and I love the little electronic processing bits on his uh, voice that you get. Yes. And a couple of times in this song were little stutters and yep. things. Uh, he doesn't even attempt to reproduce them live. I've heard a version of this live and he doesn't even, you know, there's nothing going on there. But I do like them on the on the recorded version. This, incidentally, is the first Linkin Park track that I heard, but I didn't know it was them. Uh, I watched many, many years ago, you know, it would have been like, you know, yeah, you know the year that this album came out. Um, but before I saw that video for Papercuts, I watched a I think it was a Final Fantasy EVA. You know where you get fan made yep. cut ups of cutscenes and they put like a rock track over them. That's awesome. Um, do people still even do that? I don't know. I That's probably I'm sure they do. I'm sure if we went to YouTube <laughs> right now, we'd find plenty of them. Uh, maybe so. Anyway, somebody had done that with I think it was Final Fantasy. I don't know nine or ten or something. Um, with in the end. Um, but they didn't credit, you know, plus a change. They didn't credit the musicians. So I had no idea what I was listening to. I just heard this song and I was like, oh, that's okay. Uh, and then it wasn't until after I'd heard Papercut gone out and bought this album and then listened to it and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I've heard this song before. Yep. <laughs> I love um, the pre-chorus in this one. Uh, and, and I agree with you. I think this is probably the second best song on the album in terms of how, how his flow is. He yeah. just really does a nice job throughout this entire song. But like when he says what it meant to me will eventually be a memory, it just really well, that just flows really well. Yeah. Yeah. Really. And then right into the chorus. Yeah. Right. And Chester taking over. Exactly. Yeah. Like that's a good, that's a good example of their sort of tag teaming a song and it like working to perfection. And that's a heavy, um, that's a heavy riff when you get into the chorus. And that's why I think like the, this song certainly has punch. Yes, it does. Yeah. Uh, it also has a lovely little touch at the end. Um, again, with just one of those nice little details, the piano line, yes. which, you know, sort of brings it in and then ends again at the end. Yep. You know, everything falls away and you're left with just the piano line and a bit of feedback on the guitar, but the piano line doesn't resolve. Uh, it plays through the, the same line but it never gets the last note. It finishes suspended 
instead of returning to root. Yeah, which, which is a nice touch. It's a common device to leave a bit of tension hanging because you're constantly waiting for it to drop back to root. Uh, and I'm a sucker for that. I absolutely love <laughs> yeah. songs that do that. That's the um, that's the Anthony stamp of approval right there. It absolutely is, yeah. yeah. I love... There's even, like, some of my favourite aha tracks. <laughs> You're getting really far away from metal now. Uh, are ones that do exactly that, uh-huh. that end on a suspended note, and you're like... <laughs> yep. <laughs> I love that. Uh, all right, so out of the closest thing to a ballad and into track nine, Place for My Head. Watch how the moon sits in the sky on a dark night Shining with the light from the sun The sun doesn't give light to the moon Assuming the moon's gonna go with one It makes me think of how you act to me You do favors there rapidly You just turn around and start asking me About things that you want back from me I'm sick of the tension, sick of the hunger Sick of you acting like I owe you this Find another place to feed your greed While I find a place to rest I wanna be in another place I hate when you say you don't understand Um, I really like the uh, the sort of uh, acoustic intro to this song. I think this song has a great chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it lyrically. Um, and it gets really heavy as well. So I think this is a nice pickup from that song. Even though, like I said, I, I felt like I felt like in the end has bite. And I, I feel like it's it's within the the pattern of what we've seen so far. This is a nice this is a nice pickup, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I, it's another good demonstration of Joseph Hahn's scratching. Yes, being totally. Percussive, lots and lots of percussive scratching in this. Um, one nice little touch that I like about it is how every the, the end of every verse just cuts musically at the end, just for like an eighth of a beat. Yep. But everything stops and then comes back in. And it just keeps the whole thing moving. Because, uh, again, it's not a particularly complex riff or melody line, but it just keeps the whole song moving, keeps the energy going throughout the whole thing. And this song um, really made me think of, like, and I, this isn't a fully formed thought, so you, you'll have to kind of stay with me, but they, even when they're not rapping, the way that this band delivers lines and the cadence with how one line of the verse flows into another or even the chorus or something like that is just different than the way that other bands do that like even this one where he's saying um where chester's singing i want to be in another place i hate when you say like he it just goes from first line right into second line you know what i mean like it just it just turns in on itself in in a way that feels less hard stop than a lot of other bands the way they sing lines of a verse Right, or lines yeah, of the course you know what i mean so even when it's not it's not meant to be um when they're not rapping it still has this flow to it that they play with a lot and i really like the way they do that and this is one right of those songs e- even chester's out to me. even chester's sung lyrics have flow exactly and and i feel like this is a perfect example of that and 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 not to mention the riff behind that is super heavy 
Yes, it is. And, yeah, and yeah. That's so, the thing. There are some actually quite heavy riffs in this song, absolutely. even though it doesn't sound like when you first hear it. It, like the it, verse. it lulls you to sleep a little bit in the beginning, and then it hits you. Yeah, and and uh, and I like that. And this and there's it, just a real great. There's a really smooth flow to this song that I really like. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really good. It's one of those songs that I find this is a song that uh, if I haven't listened to the album in a while, I struggle to remember it. But then as soon as I hear it, I'm like, oh yeah, no, this one, I really like this one. Yeah, I think maybe yeah. it's just the title. Maybe the title is just a bad title. <laughs> and then it gets super heavy. Yeah. Um, uh, and then from that into Forgotten. From the top to the bottom. From the top I At the core I forgot. In the middle of my thoughts. Taking part from my safety. The picture's there. The memory won't escape me. But why should I care? From the top to the bottom. From the top I stopped. At the core I forgot. In the middle of my thoughts. Taking part from my safety. The picture's there. The memory won't escape me. But why should I care? There's a place so dark you can't see the end. Skies cocked back. Shotgun which can't defend. The rain then sends dripping. Acidic questions. Forcefully. The power of suggestion. Then with the eyes shut. Looking through the rust and rotten dust. A small spot. A light floods the floor and pours over the rusted world of pretend. And the eyes ease open and it's dark again. From the top to the bottom, out of the top I stop. At the core, I forgot. In the middle of my thoughts, taking far from my safety. The picture's there. The memory won't escape me. But why should I care? In the memory you'll find me. As burning up. The darkness holding me tightly. Until the sun. I really like this song too. This this song has a very uh bouncing riff and I love the way yeah. they play off of each other vocally in this song. Um you know from the top to the bottom, bottom to top I stop, like just the way that flows is really is really cool and really driven home by the riff. Yeah, one of the things I love about this track actually is right at the start, and it relates to the previous track, they time the gap between tracks, and maybe you only get this if you actually listen to it on CD, but they time the gap between the tracks so that this almost sounds like the next part of the end of the previous track, if that makes sense. Like, it, you know, you could be forgiven for thinking, oh, this is still the previous track. Right. Right. When it, just something about the timing, the way it kicks in with that rhythm. Um, and maybe that's not deliberate, but it sure feels like it. <laughs> and boy, does this does from a chorus standpoint, like this song sounds very Alice in Chains to me. Oh, interesting. Very Alice in Chains, like that. Oh, yes, that, just, that the whole yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Cantrell and Staley just really pops into yeah, my head every yeah. time with this, and See, uh, and so that makes me that like it more. Now that you've mentioned it, yeah, that's absolutely quite clear. I had focused more on. Uh, on the verse and how this to my ears is the most limp biscuit like of the song. Well, because it also flips the formula where usually that, that heavy riff comes in the chorus, whereas in here right. it's kind of in the, in the verse and then it, and then it gets more soaring during the chorus. And so it, it, it kind of turns. Right, and the pre-chorus is actually quite light. Right. And it kind of turns there. What's cool about it is this is song nine on the album. So we're nine songs in and they play with what your expectations are a little bit with this, and I kind of dig that. Um, but you, you certainly could invoke Limbiscuit here because this is this is a song that's more indicative of the pattern that Limbiscuit follows for most of their songs. 
um, yeah. for sure. But yeah, I get a real heavy. Alice well, and something about the way here. Mike raps the verse as well just yep. kind of reminds me of Limp Biscuit a bit. Yeah, um, yeah, his uh, the way he delivers his words definitely sound a little Durstian, if I can, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, coin a new, <laughs> coin a new term there. But well, but yeah, for me, it's definitely Alice in Chains that it brings to mind when I listen to this song. Well, and one of the other things uh, about the chorus is, and I know how much you appreciate good bass playing, is the bass, I think, makes the chorus for this one. I mean, obviously, the, you know, Chester's vocals are great, but you kind of take that as given because he's a great vocalist. Sure. Um, but if you listen musically, the bass, uh, I mean, and who knows who played it on this particular track, but it does this thing where at the end of each line, three higher notes are kind of re-plucked and yep. stressed, maybe bent a little, before it returns to root uh, at the start of the next line. And it's really subtle. You don't sort of, you only, you only sort of notice it subconsciously unless you're listening for it, but it creates this great, again, tension. I keep using that word at the end of the line and really sort of brings something. There's something about it that it does to that line that really just sort of elevates and again, that, that line of the chorus. Not something that you've seen before on this album. And so here we are at yeah. track nine where you're getting They're still these, doing new things yes yeah. exactly you're getting some new elements and you're getting some some sort of turning the formula on its ear a little bit and so i i like that i like that we're still we're still exploring new stuff this deep into the album right well and speaking of exploring new stuff the next track is cure for the itch and it is like nothing you've heard so far on this album folks we have a very special guest for you tonight I'd like to introduce for the something else. It is in that, for me, it's the worst song in the album by far. Really? Yeah. Oh, I like it. I really like it. Because, I mean, it's just, it's a scratching showcase for it Mr. Hart. It is a Hart. scratching showcase, but I feel like this is a B-side at best. Like, I, I feel like this... Uh, in terms of placement, I would have bumped this and put it a song or two before this, because I think what you're doing with this song is you're now creating a really high expectation that song 12 is going to wrap this up in a nice, neat bow. So I'm 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 kind of fascinated by why they chose slot 11 for this particular song, just in terms of the, the flow of the songs. But I also don't think, I think there's a lot better stuff that he does throughout the rest of the album than anything he does on this song. Like nothing blew oh, okay. me away that he was doing technique wise here. Th- th- there's some amazing things that he does on other songs that I thought, I just think he's capable of much more than this. So I, this song didn't blow me away. And I was like, if you're going to showcase this guy's abilities, 
there's a better way to do it than this song. So so if I had to pick one song to get rid of off the album, it would be this one. Huh. Okay. No, I would definitely keep it. Uh, I think is I think this is a great track because it is musical. I mean, it's quite long as well. It's like more than three minutes long. Uh, and it is quite musical and rhythmic, you know, as well as obviously, yeah, being a sort of display of his turntablist prowess and all that. Um, but more than anything, I just love the audacity of including a track like this at all. Like no matter where it is on sure. the album, yeah. just even having this as more than if it was a 15 second track, sure, you know, whatever, but a three minute track of nothing but the group turntablist showing off on you know, a rock album. Holy shit. You well, know, and, and make no mistake. <laughs> I love instrumentals. So I'm all for, and, and, and he is an instrument within this band. So right, for me, yeah. like the fact that they're, that they're letting him go crazy on the turntables is not the reason that I don't like this song. Nor, no, 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 nor I do I think that, that he yeah. shouldn't have that, that, that shot on this album when everybody else has had a chance to really sort of be highlighted. Um, I just think that, it's not as interesting as some of the other stuff that he was doing on the album already. So it was a bit of a letdown for me when they let him loose. This was what let loose sounded like, you know? Right. Right. Okay. I can, I can see that, but yeah, I just, I just love, as I say, the, the sheer balls to say, yeah, yeah, yeah we're going to do it. And I don't know, know their th- catalog three minute enough. track of our DJ. <laughs> I don't know their catalog enough to know if there's, if he has other solos throughout different albums. But I, you know, I'm struggling to think of one. I would be I'm interested to, to hear that, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and just hear what else, what else he's doing on different songs. So, yeah. Well, I mean, no, he's still in the band and he's still like doing his thing. But in terms of actual solo tracks, I'm struggling to think of another one on a later album, actually. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'll have to go away and look at that. Um, uh, and I, I confess, I'm also slightly biased because I, one of my good friends in Los Angeles is called Han. Uh, and ever since this album came out, I, I, I am now basically incapable of seeing him and not immediately going, Mr. Han. <laughs> it's like when I see the monorail uh, in, whenever I go to Emerald City right. Comic Con in Seattle. I just can't help it. I look, I, you know, I look out my hotel window in the morning and I go, monorail. Yep. I can't help it. It's just, <laughs> it's a reflex it's just in reaction. It's, yeah, it's, it's a yeah. muscle memory at this point. <laughs> Um, all right. And then, okay. So you were talking about this leading into the last track and that last track is pushing me away. I think is a good song. I don't think it's a good closer. Oh, I disagree. 
I would put if if I had to reorganize the back half of this album, I would have put um uh Cure for the Itch at 10, I would have put this at 11 and I would have put Forgotten at 12 because I think that would have been a stronger closer. But again, that's just me remixing the album in my head, but I do I do like the song. I just don't think it's a it's a uh a standout for me. Uh now see, I I don't think Forgotten would work as well as a closer. Um there's something about the the sort of I, I think it's a great track, but I don't think it would work well as a closer because what you want from a closer is something that feels ah, feels like you're riding off into the sunset, feels like a road trip, uh, and that's what I this track does. I get that it's got that kind of rolling guitar sound. The drums are kind of rolling along as well. Um, the great chorus, like really, really great chorus. Yep. Um, Chester's delivery is the there's there is something I think compelling about the way he delivers the uh now I see you're testing me the 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 stresses there and the slight pauses and stuff really kind of drag you along with it I think um, lyrically this song is uh, one of the easiest songs to identify with on the album, you know what I mean? Right, like you're in yeah. this relationship where where it's constantly this tug of war, um, and how that that having to constantly prove yourself just just burns you out. Um, I I like that. I I like this song a lot lyrically, and it is uh, from a melodic standpoint, like it's it's a very solid Lincoln Park song for sure. Uh, but the other thing I like about it is that, like uh, the opening track, it kind of encapsulates everything about them. I, it's I got hip-hop beats, it's got Chester singing, it's got Mike rapping, it's got big guitar chords, it's got Joe Hahn scratching throughout. It's got everything that you want in a Linkin Park track in this song. Which I guess I in think, that way makes it a good closer. Right. I yep. think that's another reason why, for me, it feels like a really suitable closer. I actually, in my notes, I have written perfect place for it on the album. So... <laughs> I disagree strongly. All right. <laughs> That's our argument for the night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I would have put this at 10 and you are vehemently opposed and keeping it at 12. Absolutely. All yes. right. Yes. Well, that's good. Well, at least we left, we, uh, you know, we lived up to the tagline of the show tonight. So right. That's good. We, we got something out of yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and that's it. And that's the end of the album. And 38 short minutes later, uh, you know, breathless uh, and hopefully wanting more, you're at the end. Well, uh, and it, I, I do, as I say, I can listen to this album like all day long, every yeah. day. I, it is a very listenable album because, again, with the length of the album and the fact that none of the songs are overly long, even the songs on this album that don't jump out at me, are, I don't skip any of the songs in this. I, I mean, I don't usually do that anyways, but this is not an album where I worry about that. I just let it play through and through and through. And the because the first song is my favorite song on the album, like I'm always happy to start listening to it again. And right. so this is an album that, but then the rest of the songs keep pulling you through. Yeah, as exactly. Well, so, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so it's an album that I listened to a ton of times since the last time that we recorded. I listened to it at, and I gave it the gym test. I brought it to the gym with me today and, uh, and ran it through its paces and it's a good gym album too. So, um, I don't think I've ever listened to it in the gym. Actually, maybe I should. It's good, yeah. It's certainly good for the elliptical machine. I can vouch for that. That's the only. <laughs> that's the only one I that, that I tested it on today. But, uh, but yeah, it got me through my uh, my the bane of my existence. So, so that worked out well. But very listenable album overall. I definitely had more of an appreciation for it 
after spending some time with it, because while I had heard all of the songs the first time around, I hadn't listened to this album in years. And and I definitely don't have really any familiarity with the rest of their catalog. And this experience was enough to make me want to listen to their other stuff for sure. Right. Well, what I would say, that they are a band, a bit like some of my other favorite bands, actually, that you you should probably listen in chronological order because they do not now sound anything like they used to. They've uh-huh. changed a lot. Um, the second album, Meteora, is kind of hybrid theory part two. Uh, you know, that is very much, if you like this album, you will like that album as well. And that to album the point, topped the Billboard charts, I believe. I yes. think that went to number well, and, one. To the point where I have actually gotten confused in the past and thought that a track from Meteora was actually a track off this album and uh-huh. vice versa. Because uh, they were released very quickly uh you know after one another and they just they are they don't sound the same but they're similar enough you know they haven't really changed that much that you can very easily get them mixed up sure um so yeah i definitely recommend that one if you are a fan of uh remixes and the electronica side of it uh then i would definitely recommend they've done a, a few albums like that um just before I get to that, I should say, yeah. And their later albums, they've become much more of a, just a sort of hard rock band and gone away from, uh, you know, the metal and even the rapping to an extent on some albums. And then the last album, they came back around to it again. And the last album was a bit more heavy, a bit more guitar focused. That was uh, the Haunting Party, right? 2014? That's right. Yeah. There are guitar solos on some of the later albums, but not many, uh, because, you know, as we've said before, Brad Delson just basically doesn't like to show off and, you know, by his own admission, is not a shredding type of guitarist. Um, but yeah, they've kind of mutated and changed quite a bit. They always sound like Linkin Park, but yeah, you know, they don't always sound like a new metal band, I guess is the best way of putting it. And they're good for a new album every two to three years. I mean, just looking at their discography. They are hard workers. 2003, yeah, yeah. 2007, 2010, 2012, 2014. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if we see something from them, you know, the beginning of next year. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in 2002, they released the remix of, and it was early 2002. So it was less than two years after hybrid theory came out, but they released the re- they released an album called reanimation, which is basically the remix album of hybrid theory, uh, with 20 count them 20, wow. uh, remixes of tracks from hybrid theory. And they're all good. Like every single one of them is, you know, a good remix. Uh, actually, I say that now that I look at it, I'm looking at it iTunes. I'd forgotten three or four of them are actually just skits, so it's actually more like 16 tracks. But even so, that's more than one per you sure. know track on the original album. Uh, then the next year they released a live album, which is actually really good. They're really good live. Really, I mean, this was 2003. I'm sure they're even better now. But back in 2003, even they were really tight live. Um, uh, and the same year was when they released Meteora, which, as I say, if you like this album, you will like Meteora. It's that simple. Uh, and then the next year, 2004, they released an album called Collision Course. Was that with was Jay-Z? Made, that's the one with Jay-Z. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Where it's remixes. Or it's Mike Shinoda and Jay-Z working together to make remixes yep. of their two previous albums. So it's Meteora and whatever album Jay-Z had, you know, before this one came out. Uh, yeah, all like remixed together. Um, it's surprisingly good. It, it's, you know, a genuinely good, I mean, you have to like hip hop, sure. you have to be into sort of 
you know, this kind of, oh, let's try something different and see what comes out of it. But if you are, this is a really good album. Oh, I say album, it's an EP, really. There's only six tracks. But it's really good, yeah. I really like it. Um, and then after that was then they when they started becoming more of a sort of, yeah, just hard rock band. Uh, Minutes to Midnight was 2007. That was a concept album. Um, uh, 2010 was A Thousand Sons, another concept album, um, which I think that one was all about nuclear war. Um, and again, you know, they're good and they do sound like Linkin Park. Chester still sounds great and everything. Mike's still rapping, but they are much less kind of, they're more mature. You know, they're less sort of like young men jumping around with boundless energy uh, and more sort of like mature musicians making serious music. Uh, don't forget, they did also do the uh, Transformers uh, soundtrack for, I think it was the second Transformers Holy movie. Holy crap, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which, I mean, you know, take it or leave it. But the actual single off of that, the actual sort of Linkin Park track, which is called New Divide, is really good. Really good. Hey, if you want to talk about great bands making soundtracks for garbage movies, ACDC did the soundtrack for Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. And, oh, wow. uh, and and the album <laughs> Who Made Who was basically the soundtrack for that movie, oh, which is one of the where I just did a uh, I do a column for this blog Midnight Society Tales uh, called Diamonds in the Rough, and it's basically about crappy eighties horror movies and and the parts of them that were really awesome. And the the only awesome <laughs> thing about that movie is the ACDC soundtrack because it was Emilio Estevez and uh, just a, a host of terrible actors, and it was a movie that Stephen King wrote and directed. And that t- really Ooh. tells you all you need to know about that. Yeah. Um, but but you'll remember, if you're wondering what the heck that movie was, it was the movie with featuring a truck with the giant green goblin face on the front of it. That was Maximum Overdrive. I don't think I've ever seen that. Oh, wow. Uh, and it sounds like I shouldn't regret that. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I'd love to tell you you have to see it, but you really don't. Just listen to Who Made You. Oh, man. All right. Okay. So, uh it is time to get to our homework, except that this week, of course, our homework is not selected by us. Nope. This is the great uh, patron album nomination poll. So we had 30 entries from patrons, 30 nominations. Um, many of them were for, <laughs> for, for one album. <laughs> many of them were for Opeth's Blackwater Park. Uh, so if that does get selected, don't be too surprised because there are literally one, two, three, four, five nominations for that one album. Uh, right. So, so explain to the folks how you're actually picking this album. Right. I have uh, got a list of all the nominations that were made in the Patreon thread. Uh, we, we restricted it to Patreon, obviously, to make sure that only patrons could vote. Um, and I've got all the um, albums here in alphabetical order of the bands, numbered 1 to 30, because we had 30 nominations. And I am going to go to random.org. Oh, I thought you were going to roll a 30-sided die. I don't have a, 30, a D30, I'm sorry. Neither do uh, I. I only have D30. No, I'm going to go to uh, random.org and generate a random number there. And in fact... I'll even make a video of it just to prove that, you know, we're doing it legit. Hang on. Right. So we have absolutely no idea what, what album is going to be picked at this point, even right now. We do not. We do not. So hang on. I'll start the video uh, and then I will press the number and we'll see what comes up. So, okay, here we go. Generate. Result. 15. Mastodon. 
Blood Mountain. All right. Nominated by Lenny Reed. Well done, Lenny. Very nice, Lenny. And Lenny has been around, I believe, since the beginning of this show. He is one of our longest serving <laughs> listeners, as it were. So, uh, yeah, that kind of feels... But I, Oh, I've got to press stop on the video. Uh, <laughs> I was recording that on my iPhone, so I will post that to Facebook and you can see it is legit. Uh, yeah, number 15, Mastodon, Blood Mountain. Um, so, uh, I have heard some Mastodon before. I haven't, don't own any of their albums, and I certainly haven't heard that album before. I am so, in the same exact boat as you, so this is exciting. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's kind of, I mean, you know, if we had got something out of it that we both knew, well, that's great, because we'd probably want to talk about it anyway. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I was hoping that we might get something out of this that y- you or I left to our own devices, wouldn't pick. Yep. And I can honestly say, hand on heart, I wouldn't have picked a Mastodon album. Nope, me you neither. Know, we, we'd, have to, we'd have to be a long way down the road, like, you know, episode 300 or something, before I would have thought of Mastodon. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be But a worthy band for this show, certainly, because they have been around and are a well-respected band in the metal community, for sure. Absolutely, yes, yes. Um, yeah, okay, brilliant. Right, well, okay, we'll go away and get that album then, and uh, that will be our next episode. Fantastic, can't wait. So that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, remember, if you enjoy the show, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes, and uh, do pledge your support at patreon.com slash thrashitout. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and Twitter, or join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashitout. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Thrash It Out is brought to you by, well, you, and that is because we are a... Oh, actually, shit, no, wait, that's last week's. (laughs) That's the last episode. (laughs) Let's try that again.